Thank you for listening to the BJJ Brick Podcast. We'll be bringing you Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and good times. We hope to flatten your Jiu-Jitsu learning curve, help you get the most out of your grappling ability, and meet your goals both on and off the mat. Welcome back, my friends, to the BJJ Brick Podcast. This is episode 221, and today we have Kit Dale as our special guest. We also have another guest today. We have our good buddy, Joe Thomas, and as usual, I have Byron Jabbar with me. How are you guys doing today? I'm doing good, Gary. How are you doing? Fabulous. Thank you for joining us, Joe. Uh, my pleasure to be here. How are you, Byron? I'm doing great. This is uh, a lot of fun. Get the three amigos on here. Uh, Joe is definitely a full member of the team, and look for more coming on to Joe as uh, as time goes on this year. So uh, It's good well, to have like all three to of us together. Yeah, I'd like to congratulate Joe. I hear he did his first interview that'll be coming up uh, on the podcast here shortly. So uh, congrats, Joe. That's awesome. Thanks, man. I had a good time doing it. I had a couple friends come over to the apartment, and we did it in person. That is awesome. That's great. It's always best to do it in person. <laughs> well, we, we have been getting a lot of uh, a notes to our email at bjjbrick at gmail.com of a lot of people have been getting really frustrated with Byron's voice, and uh, they wanted somebody different. So I think, Joe, I think you fit that perfect. I think uh, a lot of people will be happy. It's me and you going forward, Gary? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll kick the guy out who started all this. <laughs> They're still going to make me edit the whole thing and do all the uh, behind-the-scenes yeah. annoying things. <laughs> yeah. Yes, somebody's got to do the work. Yeah, and we'll let him wear the T-shirt. Oh, man. Well, and I'm yeah. the one that uh, has this uh, fancy new audio book, Six Games for BJJ. And if your game is kind of like, uh, I don't know, feel like you're on a plateau or you're looking for a little bit of something different, uh, these games are designed to alter the way you're, you're rolling and alter the way you're grappling and just make you kind of explore new areas that may have gone unseen. So uh, during the interview today, Kit Dale talks a lot about um, rolling and, and training I think th- these games are kind of a, a unique way to look at that uh, and just develop your own game a little quicker and uh, really surprise yourself with what might be next for your development. So check that out. It's a little over an hour long. It's five ninety nine. There'll be a link to it in the show notes. And uh, there's basically six ways you could grapple a little differently, have a lot of fun, and get better at jiu-jitsu. And I will tell you, another one that I tried to get Byron to put on there, another game, Hide and Tap, did not actually make it. So uh, I'll keep trying, and I'll get one on there sooner or later. Gary's persistence is is uh, really amazing. That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> to the judge. <laughs> it's good we have Joe on here. I think you have uh, kind of a off-the-mat lesson for us. Joe, what do you have? I do. Um, I was able to enjoy a vacation over the holidays with my wife and our 15-month-old grandson. And where we were at, there was a kiddie pool, and it had a slide, four or five steps to get up to it. And that kid went up to the steps and, and went up on his hands and knees. And, I, man, you're nervous. You're watching that kid go up there. But he does it, and he comes down the slide, and pretty soon he's going up on his hands and his feet and not his hands and knees and then pretty soon he's just standing up and using the handrail to go and it's so exciting watching a kid like that progress and meet the challenges and then we got to the airport 
and there's rows of seats that are like chest high to him. And he reaches up and gets a grip and tries to pull himself up and it doesn't work. And he switches his grips and he struggles and eventually he pulls himself up. And he's pretty proud of himself. And then he gets down just to try it again and pulls himself up. And I'm watching that and I'm thinking, when do we lose that? Because I'm telling you, I don't walk down the street and see a ledge that's chest high and decide, hey, I want to see if I can get up there. But uh, I think it's something that we should strive for more, especially for those of us that do jujitsu. Pick a challenge and and meet it head on. Well, you know, Joe, you're talking about, you know, when do we lose that? Pick a challenge and meet it head on. I'm actually thinking about you, buddy. Uh, Here you are, you know, a a little bit older than the average person who does jujitsu. And you take up uh, skateboarding, you know, which is a very, uh, you know, tough... uh, uh, sport, you know, can lead to some injuries, but uh, you know, here you are. And me and Byron were talking about this a couple of weeks ago that I was thinking about, you know, after seeing you, I was like, hey, I'd like to get one and try it. And Byron's like, man, you're just going to hit your head and you're going to get hurt. <laughs> and you know, the whole time you're saying that, that's exactly what I was thinking. And so, I mean, you uh, you do exactly as your 15 month year old grandson. You uh, you know, keep doing new tasks, trying out new stuff, and and not afraid of anything. No, but I'll bet you, you know, I look at a ramp and I'm like, oh, man, I'm not ready for that. But I don't think that concept even occurs to my grandson. It doesn't matter how big or how steep. If there's a challenge, he's going to take it. So I appreciate you saying that, Byron, but I, or Gary, but I still have a long ways to go, too. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Um, you know, our brain works a little bit differently. We see the fear now that you talk about it you know going up and down a big ramp um you know we we see the fear we're like oh boy that could uh, really hurt us and uh, so i do see your point there sir i think something happens with us as adults as well where we see a challenge it may not be uh, you know physically dangerous but we shy away from it because we know uh, I, I think it's the biggest one's probably the ego gets us you know you don't want to be embarrassed you don't want to let yourself down you don't want to, to just be disappointed and we we tend to shy away from challenges where children they don't really have that ego they don't really get embarrassed at that age and they just they see something can I do it let's try it and it doesn't work let's try it again let's, until it gets boring or they get it they're gonna they're gonna do it and I think that that's one thing that adults you know we ha- we have we have those problems with those mental blocks that that give us barriers all the time and I think at jujitsu we can do the same thing you're right Joe uh, just try to ignore for you those barriers and uh and and to just go go forward and and try to almost surprise yourself with what you can do and uh i think we'll we would all have better results this year if we do that sounds like a good new year's resolution well that's you know we're at the beginning of the year here and we have a quote from uh charles richards uh my uh my wife recommended this quote so <laughs> she didn't even Byron, email it is- to me <laughs> <laughs> who is Charles Richards? Oh, uh, I'm not 100% sure, Gary. I did not bother to look that up, but I'm sure there's more of a few Charles Richards out there. But uh, <laughs> I just wanted to see you look it up and uh, see how many you pulled up. Not going not gonna to bother today, but we are going to talk about the quote. Uh, the quote is, Don't be fooled by the calendar. There are only as many days in the year as you make use of. And you look through a whole year, 365 days, Occasionally, you're going to waste a day. It might be a weekly thing you do, or maybe your whole weekend is just kind of sitting on the couch doing nothing. But uh, those days don't really count much towards helping you get better at anything. So uh, don't be fooled by the calendar. You don't get 365 
you get how many days that you actually want to use and make the most out of, whether it's jujitsu, if it's a good quality family day, if it's, you know, some big breakthrough at work that's real exciting or, you know, career changing. Those are the days that count the most out of the year. And uh, you got to gotta really look for those and, and take them and, and make them happen more often. You know, I think about it on a, on a jujitsu scale. Uh, we all want to get better. And, you know, if we got some free time, or are we sitting at home? home watching uh, tv eating potato chips or are we out on the mat um you know we may not be able to roll hard every day but we can drill we can slow roll we can uh, learn some new techniques we can you know perfect some of our techniques so um you know if we want to get better and uh, and you know just you know improve and, and uh you know just have fun you know we need to step out on the mat you know spend as much time as possible and try not to waste those days yeah absolutely um you know, I, I, I'm guilty of wasting time just like everybody else. Think about if you watch 10, 12 hours of TV every week and add that up over the course of a year, it's just an enormous amount of time that you could have been doing other things. Everybody needs to, to relax a little bit and have some distraction. But, yeah, you got to be careful with the time you waste. And there's something to be said for having fun. But I remember, like, back in school – you know, you get out for the summertime and you have like a whole summer in front of you, and it's just amazing. Every day is exciting. It's kind of like a weekend. You know, Saturday, Sunday, you're going to make it happen and you go right back to school. Towards the end of the summertime, the days aren't appreciated anymore. You're not having fun. You're just kind of getting through the summer, and and it's more of a countdown until school starts up again. And if you have a ton of free time and, and time to do, you know, just fun things all the time, I think those are harder to appreciate as well. You know, Byron, if you give me a bunch of free time yeah. and tell me I don't have to go to work and have the summer off and the rest of the year off, I will make it, you know, productive. I promise you. I, I'll give you the time off, Gary. But uh, I, I, I'm going to tell you, if you had, let's just say, like 10 weeks off, the first week is going to be uh, more meaningful than the last week. Does that make sense? I, it makes sense, but, you know. <laughs> You're going to make it happen every, either way. Every day, yeah. Every day I'm not at work is going to be a good day. Well, I'm not surprised, Gary. You're going to be getting on the mats and, and doing a little bit of skateboarding there. Yep. Yeah. See, that give me more time to uh, pick up skateboard. There you go. Maybe I go. could skateboard skateboard down and see Joe. Might take about <laughs> seven or eight years, but uh, I might make it there someday. You might. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be afraid to try new things, Gary. Like it's like a kid. Have that child's heart and mind, and just go for the go for the challenge, even though it's five degrees outside. You know, that's awesome you said that because thank you for, you know, pushing me over the edge. I am going to quit my job and just uh, <laughs> do that. Thanks, Byron. Oh, your wife's going to kill me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we're always pushing this show over the edge uh, one way or the other. And I've, I'm happy to finally get Kit Dale on the show. I've been, uh, you know, excited to do that for a while. And finally got a hold of him and, and, and got him on here. And, uh, yeah, very knowledgeable at jujitsu funny guy uh, heads up if you're in the car with a bunch of young children or you have your speakers blaring at work uh, a little bit more colorful language than usual nothing that's gonna go crazy but uh, just heads up on that one and uh, here comes a lot of fun here's our Kit Dale interview he is the most interesting grappler in the world I play spider guard against Peter Parker Peter said that he felt like a fly caught in a spider web. 
I don't wear pajamas when I go to bed. Instead, every night, I wear a different key. Except when I want to have no-gi dreams. I get three points every time that I open my iPhone. I don't always listen to podcasts, but when I do, I prefer the BJJ Brick Podcast. Stay sweaty, my friends. All right, my friends, I'm happy to bring Kit Dale to the BJJ Brick Podcast. Kit, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Uh, looking forward to get to know you a little bit better and uh, talking with you about jiu-jitsu. Uh, we always have new people coming to the show, people who are new to the sport. Can you just introduce yourself a little bit to those who may not know of you yet? All right. Uh, my name is Kit Dale. I'm a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, two-time world pro champion, uh, arguably one of the better-looking grapplers <laughs> in the world. Um and the only good thing to come out of Australia. I hope Craig <laughs> Jones is listening to that. <laughs> yeah, we did just have uh, Craig Jones on a little while ago, and I don't know if he disputed that at all. He might have left that one on the table for you to take. Oh, I don't think he's going to be able to challenge me in that area. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm excited to have you on here. Uh, could you maybe give us a little bit of a, a little bit of a snapshot or look at? your competition history and, and kind of maybe run us through like earlier competitions and then up to where you're at now. Okay. Uh, so I started my, I had my first taste of resume jiu-jitsu in 2008, but I was playing football and I was working full time at the, at the same time. So I, I never even thought or watched a competition until 2009. Uh, I had a knee surgery. I'm sorry. I didn't have a knee surgery. I had a knee injury in between 2008 and 2009. So I missed about six months and then I went to watch a competition. I was a white belt, and uh, I saw a guy that was at the gym that was, it was like me and him were quite even, and I heard he was competing, and I thought, man, he's going to get destroyed. And then he won the competition, and I was like, wow, that's amazing. If he won, that means I won, as you do. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, then I, uh, and then I started competing. I went in my first competition. It was like an in-house competition, and there was like five fights and a round robin, and I won all of them. And then I went into... There was a color belt division there as well, and I went into that, and there was a, a blue and a purple belt, and I beat both those guys. But, I mean, when I say a blue and purple belt, I'm not talking about a, a regular blue and purple belt. They shouldn't have been uh, – I would say they shouldn't have been blue and purple belts at the time. They were probably just very good white belts, and uh, and I won that. And so I kind of – I really enjoyed it, and I, I went on, and I, I kept competing. I think I got my blue belt not long after that. And then I went into a competition. There was the Victorian Championships, and I, I won my one of my divisions. And then I got to the finals in the next division, and I had to forfeit because I was playing football that day as well. So I, I left there to go play football, and we got beat by ten goals. So I was like, "Oh shit! I should probably just concentrate more on the jiu-jitsu <laughs> at the moment." <laughs> and uh, and then I, I went into the there was the Pan Pacific Championships in Australia, which is like the biggest Australian one. And I won that, and then I went to the Abu Dhabi qualifiers in Sydney. And I remember that because I got burnt on my head the day before because my ex-girlfriend was a pain in the ass and made me walk around everywhere to go see sightseeing, go sightseeing. And I got really burnt on my head, and I've got a, a shaved head or a bald head. So it became a big problem, and I, I won the next day. 
but it was really tough. There was five fights to win, and the hardest part was in the final because as I was walking up, I remember they were calling my name out, and I thought, man, you know what? I really need a fart. I'm going to get this out quickly now before I get out there and everyone goes quiet. And then as I went to fart, I realized that wasn't just air. There's some solid solidness to this, and I kind of freaked out, and I realized that I could easily shit myself in this final match in front of everyone. So I kind of I went out there, and I, I froze up a little bit for the first minute, and the guy took me down, almost armbarred me, but then I, my stomach started sucking itself back in, and I, uh, I got back into the fight and won. So I won the, um, the qualifiers, but I was very worried at this time because I didn't think I'd be able to leave the country and compete because I had a debt from a car loan that I got that was outrageous, and I'd lost my job before that, and um, I had debt collectors coming after me, so I heard that they could stop you from leaving the country, and I wasn't working at the time, uh, so I, I ended up freaking out a little bit, but I went to Abu Dhabi. And I won the Abu Dhabi Pro as a blue belt, which I was very happy to. I fought a really tough Brazilian. Then I went up next year, went to the next belt, uh, purple belt. Did really well in Australia. Went to Abu Dhabi. I won the Abu Dhabi. I fought some tough dudes like DJ Jackson, uh, Philippe Penna. They were all my division. I won that. Then I went to the Brazilian Nationals, and I fought in that, and I won that. And I remember fought uh, Marcus Tanoko in the final. Uh, he's an animal. And uh, and then I went across to the the worlds in probably the worst shape I should have ever gone. I was just burnt out at this time, and I um I uh, I arrived about a day before, and I was eating. They had a fast food here. I haven't seen it since then. I can't remember what it was called, but I was eating a lot of that shit. And I, I went out in the first two matches, and I blitzed it. And then the third match, I just felt so sick. I thought I was going to throw up everywhere. So I think I was up 7-0, and I had to throw myself into a triangle just to get off the mats because I was worried I was going to throw up on him. Then the next year, I went to Brown Belt. I uh, did really well at Brown Belt, got to the World Pro Finals, and I lost to Sebastian Broch. Uh, I remember that very distinctively because I was asleep before the final, and he woke me up and said, hey, we're getting called up. And I, I never warmed up or anything, and I had a huge adrenaline dump. And I literally couldn't use my hands after the first minute. So it was, uh, it was survival after then. And then I got my black belt the year after. And uh, I competed for a good year where I was super motivated. And then a few things changed. And uh, I didn't really – I wasn't as interested in competition as much or training for competition. And and then I got a couple good super fights like Metamorris and, and stuff like that. But I just – my heart wasn't really in it at the time. I was kind of over it. And then I, I stepped away from jiu-jitsu for, for a few months and went and played some Australian rules football. And then I did my knee. And I missed. Uh, I spent two years trying to come back from that after getting surgery. I didn't have any money to get the surgery done, so I, I got into acting. And I was lucky enough to get a big role in a movie that comes out in February, which uh, I paid about $55,000, I think it was, for it. So I got my knee surgery done. And then I come back into competition, which was silly, but seven months after I competed at the Nogi Worlds and I, I got to the quarterfinals at Black Belt and uh, I probably shouldn't have been even doing anything like that yet. And then I fought this year at the Worlds, got to the quarterfinals, lost to Andre Galvao and made it to the quarterfinals again, I think, at the Nogi Worlds just uh, recently. Fought ADCC, uh, qualified for that in Japan, uh, lost in overtime to Homlo Bahal. And I kind of had a, it's been a really cool sort of journey back into it. I've got a very different 
attitude towards competition now. It's more for me just for, for fun and to step outside my comfort zones and to, to try and put myself in the best position to win them. Um, but I still I still love competing and I'm, I'm more into the coaching side of things and the science behind you know, why I excelled, how I got my black belt in four years and how other people can do the same thing just by changing the way they look at jiu-jitsu. So that's kind of where I'm at on the jiu-jitsu front at the moment. Oh, that was a, a very nice like almost a summary of, of what you've done as far as uh, some of the highlights and, and all through the kind of the belt levels and, and looking at, at what you've been doing. You had success early on in jiu-jitsu. A lot of people have a hard time doing that. They start jiu-jitsu, they train, they go to the school, and then they, they go to compete, and it's tougher than they anticipated. And it sounds like you just, when you started competing, it was working for you. It, you weren't having much trouble. Can you maybe pick out one or two things that made that, uh, made jiu-jitsu such an easy thing for you to pick up and, and to get to doing uh, so well so early? You know, I think it, the most of it is to do with the way I approach jiu-jitsu. I, I come from, uh, I was playing Australian rules football, and I know not many people are going to be aware of what that is, but it's one of the most fucking chaotic sports and dangerous sports in the world. Uh, imagine like uh, NFL with no pads and people can go anywhere and you know hit you from any position. So it's, it's pretty full on. And I was lucky enough to have access to really high-level players and coaches. Uh, I, I was playing for a very rich team, and me and my brother were the only two players from inside the vicinity of where we were. In, you know, the the area everyone else was uh, was imported, so we had a lot of money to import really good players. And the approaches that I learned through these really good coaches were what I applied to jiu-jitsu early on. Now, I, I didn't, I didn't enjoy the doing the technique parts of jiu-jitsu. I kind of saw it more as a hindrance than uh, than going to help me. I kind of looked at it because uh, obviously jiu-jitsu right now, I mean, with most clubs, is taught like the industrial age education system, where you come in, they tell you exactly what to do, you repeat that. If you repeat it exactly the way they said it, then you're a good student. You're doing well. It's exactly the way the the industrial age education system works, which was designed in the late '60s to create factory workers. Uh, it's taking all these individuals with amazing gifts and conforming and batching them into one model of what you think is right. And I, I'd never agreed with that. It made no sense to me. So I tried to avoid any of that by turning up late to training and missing the technique side of things and just doing the specific training, which is the live training in controlled areas. For example, uh, you know, you have to pass their guard or they're going to sweep you and the rolling or the rounds at the end. So doing that kind of forced me, one, to, to look at jiu-jitsu techniques a lot differently than what other people did, where instead of looking at a technique as this is the, uh, the be-all that ends all, like, okay, you do this, you practice it, you know, 10,000 times to master it, I would be like, okay, you know, screw learning 200 different sweeps. What is the, what is the, the common denominator for all these sweeps? What's the common theme here? What's the formula for it? So if you look at mathematics as a sense, instead of looking at the back of the book for the answers, like you know, like I did in mathematics, and then sitting a test and realizing I don't have the back of the book, which is basically the instructor in jiu-jitsu. You, know, you sit there, you have a problem, you've got this equation in front of you, you need to pass half guard, and then you ask the teacher for the answer, he comes and tells you. But any time a variable changes, which it does all the time in jiu-jitsu, you need that teacher to come and teach you the answer again because you don't understand how we come up with that answer. So what I try to avoid is that, that from happening. Instead of what I, what I started doing, which was learning the formula, which is the concept, the underlying concept that makes all sweeps work, 
okay, which is very simple. You take away someone's ability to post in a certain direction and you generate leverage to move them in that area. If you can do that, you're going to sweep them from anywhere. You can take them down from anywhere and you're going to turn them over from anywhere. So I focused more on the formula so that I knew that any time a variable changed or a position changed, I could use the formula to come up with a solution. And then what happened is I got quicker and quicker at coming up with formulas because you see the same sort of common themes popping up and, and down all the time. And then you keep, you know, it just it works a lot quicker. You develop uh, stronger neurological connections and then the myelin that's wrapped around there gets uh, helps the processing become quicker so that you process things almost in a split second rather than, uh, you know, at first you've got to sit there and try and figure things out, if that makes sense. So I, I took that that sort of route that was one thing that helped me a lot because it was a little bit harder first but remember i spent a you know a good seven months of training before i competed so I, I think if i competed straight away i would have got destroyed but i had seven months of working on this before i did so i started developing a, a decent foundation and uh, another thing that helped a lot was i never spent too much time on one area even if one thing is working i get bored and i move to something else so I, I was randomizing my training a lot which really helped because there's so much evidence now to show that randomizing or spacing your training out is so much more effective than blocking or massing your training to give an example of how this works instead of um, say you've got a test in mathematics on saturday you could spend all friday doing mathematics now it'll be good for saturday because you'll have a short-term memory spike but after four weeks most of that information arguably 80 percent of that information will be gone and you'll forget it that's why we would struggle if we sat the same mathematics tests that we did as we're kids, you know, now. We would struggle to get that. So you're better off spacing your training out. We only learn about 20 minutes of information per particular subject every single day. So instead of spending an hour on a subject and losing 40 minutes of it, spend 20 minutes on passing, 20 minutes on guard, 20 minutes on takedowns every session. And what you're going to do is you're going to avoid having any kind of short-term spike which is annoying because that's kind of the, the, the tangible difference in your progression, but you're not going to forget that shit in four weeks' time. So doing that helped a lot, and um, you know, there's various other factors that, that I, I talk about in the Art of Learning Jiu-Jitsu Volume 1 and 2 that, that helped with that uh, as you get sort of deeper into it. But I think that was a huge difference in the way I, I, I looked at Jiu-Jitsu on a conceptual sense rather than on a, um, a procedural sense. Do you think that most students who come in and start learning these concepts just as easily as you did, or is it for some students easier to just to learn what type of the, what the armbar is or how the sweep works, and then as they have built something, try to learn concepts on top of that? Well, it's always going to be easier to learn when someone else shows you how to do it, but it, the problem is it is less beneficial for you. You sort of it's like imagine you're you're going into dance school. And the teacher shows you a choreographed dance routine. And you can do that and you can practice and get good at it really quick. But anytime that music changes, you don't know how to change with it because you never learned how to dance or how to move. All you did was learn one song. Now, I, I made the same mistake in music. I started learning guitar and I learned how to read music and I just started copying other people's songs, which is really good. So if you hear me play someone else's song, it sounds like kick and play guitar. But if, you, if I have to deviate from that or innovate on my own and jam with someone, I suck because I don't understand anything about music. So what you're going to do is you're going to, you've got two different types of paths here. You can go to school, like to an academy and learn off the teacher and drill that. But what you're going to do is you're going to become somebody with a whole heap of jiu-jitsu moves. 
or you can go to someone that's conceptual and it'll be a little bit harder at first because you need to understand these concepts, which we, we know we learn by association and repetition. So it's really hard for us to associate certain things with jiu-jitsu when we have no information on it. So as a good coach, what you need to do is use good analogies so they can understand what you're trying to say. So it comes down a lot more to what the, to the coach than what it does the student. If the coach can articulate what he's saying clearly, then the students are going to be able to adopt that. But if the coach struggles, then it's going to be really hard. And I, I feel like we see that with a lot of – there's a lot of jiu-jitsu guys out there that are highly conceptual, but they can't articulate it. So they, te- they teach procedurally and techniques, and it doesn't really work. They're not getting the best out of their students. Uh, and to answer the question again, it's all like you're going to have – I'm nothing special with you know concepts – you're going to have people that are better than me. You're going to have people that are worse. And uh, that's subjective to the individual. It's always going to be like that, um, depending on if they've got learning disabilities or whatnot. Uh, it's, it's really hard to say. But I can, I can tell you from my experience, when I try and learn things, I struggle just as much as anyone else at the start. But then slowly things start clicking. And I just know now that the harder path at the start is the better one to take, whereas you're really trying to understand you know, on a, a declarative level what you're doing rather than just being taught how to do it. So I'm trying to avoid looking at the back of the maths book for anything I'm trying to learn right now because I know that will give me short-term gains, but it's going to really stump me in the long in the long term. It sounds like it, it, it almost sets better in your brain as the, the weeks go by because you had to figure out part of it and, and you have that deeper understanding. You mentioned myelin. It, it built that thicker myelin and it's going to stay with you a lot longer. So the cumulative effect long-term by figuring out these concepts you feel is a, is a learning advantage and a, and a growth advantage. Yeah, I, I think that I use this analogy. I always say, imagine you had two of you. One of you guys go and open an acai uh, shop. The other one goes and learns how to open an acai shop. You both spend four years. After four years, who would you trust to have the most information on how to do that? The guy that's running the business. <laughs> exactly. So when I tell students, I, so go and run your own jiu-jitsu. Learn yourself. Take calculated risks. Learn from your mistakes. You know, fail twice as much as you, you know, as what the regular guy does. And you're naturally going to learn through trial and error. You're going to develop the, this understanding through making mistakes and all this kind of stuff. So it's more of an organic uh, process rather than a mechanical process. So for me to get the best out of my students, it has to be organic. It can't be mechanical. So I have to just create an environment that gets the best out of them, that allows them to get the best out of themselves, rather than me trying to push some ideology on them and some style on them, which is going to confine them more than anything. Help me visualize what this looks like. We've all been to the typical jiu-jitsu class. You, you go in, you say hi to your buddies, you stretch, you warm up, you learn a technique, and you roll. Kind of that system of of class what's it look like when yeah. you're running a class and, and things are going like if you had your ideal situation and you wanted to teach the most amount to these students and really get the the best bang for your their buck uh, out of this course uh, my ideal situation i walk into a class there's 20 naked women there <laughs> and uh, my ideal situation would be i go into a class i do a warm-up for five or ten minutes and this warm-up contains some sort of skill set development. I do not understand these coaches that get their students to do hip escapes every single session and front rolls and back rolls. There's only so many hip escapes you need to do before you're just creating some unnecessary pattern. It is nothing like hip escaping against someone that's trying to pass. Let's be honest. You're hip escaping against air. It's like me playing air guitar 
and then saying, yeah, it's really helping my guitar work. No, it's not. It's going to make bad habits more than anything. But I try and get him to do whether it's some kind of gymnastics, some kind of grip fighting, some kind of wrestling entries, just whatever it is, it has to be developing some kind of understanding of, of jiu-jitsu or helping him in some way and obviously warming him up in a safe uh, manner. Then what I would do is I would come in and I, I would talk about So instead of me just teaching one technique, I'm going to talk about a position. I'm going to say what I'm thinking about in this position, some of the things I'm worried about, certain body types may have this advantage, whatever. I'm trying to give them enough information on this. Now, I will teach them something to do from there. And it may be a, a technique, but it's more of a con- concept around that technique. So I use the technique as an example, but the concept is what I want to in- them to internalize, which is the why. This is why I'm doing this. Okay, This is why I'm passing like this. I'm using this kneecap pass because what I'm trying to do is do A, B, and C. Then what I do is I get them to go out there and I get them to play around with that area. I want them to move around, feel it, try some new things because what I want them to do is problem solve. I want them to be thinking the whole time rather than just doing. Okay, So it gets them thinking in a problem-solving manner so they're starting to get experience through trial and error but it's at a very controlled and confined rate where i can go around help them and and give them little tips and stuff like that but ultimately i'm trying to show them the door and get them to walk through that after a while i'll come in i'll bring them in i'll let them ask any questions so i get them in the habit of of thinking about it and reflecting on things uh if they've got any questions i'll answer that or if if no one's got any questions then i'll just i'll go a little bit further with that with that lesson and I'll, i'll take it to another step because what I want to avoid doing is over giving them too much information because then they'll start forgetting it. I think we only learn, uh, I can only hold three to seven things in our head at one particular time. So if you do more than that, you're going to start getting them to forget things. So what I, what I sometimes do is I'll give them half the lesson and I'll, I'll get them and I'll throw them out in the water. And, you know, I, let's say, for example, if I'm putting them in the water, I teach them how to swim with their hands. And then they're struggling. So I go, oh, no, you can also use your legs. And I go, ah, that makes it so much easier. You know. So what I try and do is I try and give them half of the lesson, and then I throw them in an environment that is going to get them to ask the question. So then when I answer it, they already have something to associate that information with. It's kind of like creating a supply and demand in a sense. Like if I was going to do self-defense, a way of doing that would be putting a balaclava on and going and punching someone in the back of the head and then leaving my card for self-defense there. I'm creating a supply and demand for them. <laughs> so after they've done, and I call that the experimentational phase, the experimentational phase, sorry. Then what I do is I, I start the implementation phase where I create a live training structured around what we just learned. Let's say we learned some half guard passing and some concepts. Then we start in half guard and we have to pass. And the guy underneath has to actively stop us or sweep us or submit us. So then they, they start to implement what they've just learned. So they're starting to really create neurological connections with trial and error, making mistakes live. Because that's when you're going to see whether it works. Because the timing is the most important thing, not the technique. And the timing is just deception. It's your ability to deceive your opponent. Your ability to, to uh, pretend you're going left when you're really going right. Pretend you're most vulnerable when you're most powerful. You know, that kind of stuff. So I get them to do that a little bit. Then we call them back in. And then I have another Q&A, ask them more questions. Maybe I have a little bit further to go that I haven't told them yet. And I've known they've come up with this problem. So I go, okay, here's this and this and this. So they're, they're, once again, they've got more of an understanding now to associate that information with. If I had have come with that whole amount of information at the start of the session, it would have taken ages and they would have, one, got bored, or two, they would have forgotten most of it because it's too much. So if I can create that environment that gets them to ask the question first, 
then they have something to associate that information with and it's a lot easier for them to process it. After this stage, I go out and we do just, it'll be rolling, free rolling, where they can do whatever they like or it'll be, it'll be rounds. And then we finish once again with uh, a Q&A and that'll be it. Maybe I have a you know one last bit of the, the um, session to talk about or it's just a Q&A and then we finish up. And that's how a class, I think, should should work. It's moving away from the the outdated industrial age model into an agricultural model where you as a coach are more like a farmer and your your idea is to create the perfect environment for your plants and your students to grow. You know, you come over, you water them occasionally with adequate adequate information, you allow them time to to soak that up and to thrive. So essentially I'm trying to get the best out of them through creating an environment that does that rather than me trying to shape them into what I think is the best for them. I love this idea of creating the environment. We see so many really good jiu-jitsu coaches that can explain techniques and teach to the students and and really produce really good students. But there's a different level of of coach that they also focus on the room, how the atmosphere of the room is, how people are communicating with each other, how they're helping each other. And that's different than just teaching technique. That's controlling the environment that they're in and and just like like the quality of the soil that the plants are in. And it's... Not every coach does that, but I think that's an interesting concept. Where's all this coming from? Where did uh, is it just personal success? This kind of using this method, or was it from the uh, Australian rules football stuff that you kind of picked up these training techniques? Some of it was from Australian rules football, and some of it was just by coincidence. I'm not, I'm not no, uh, I'm no genius in sense of like I, I knew this kind of stuff before. This most of it was trial and error, and it worked for me. So then we try to reflect on why has this worked so well? How did I get my black belt so quickly? Let's have a look at what I did that was different to others, and let's see why that worked. And then the more we did that, the more we started bumping on case studies that proved these types of training worked and, and these kind of things. And I was like, ah, oh, that makes so much sense now. Why it works? And then my goal was, okay, let's teach this. I need to, I need to show everyone how powerful this is and get everyone, you know, free everyone from the, you know, the restraints of what they've been, t- you know, the way they've been taught into a way that better suits the individual uh so a lot of it was that the the main thing that happened with like my um my my football coaches that came in a little bit were uh they changed a lot of the static training to live training now for example i'll try and paint this picture for you we would have certain drills where we would catch a football kick it along to the next group and they would kick it back it was very stationary you didn't need to think much you know, you just did the same thing over and over again. So what we did was we would introduce more people and defenders. So then suddenly there's no rules on exactly how you're going to do something. You've got a goal in, in mind. So you know the, the idea of what you're trying to achieve, but the process of it is going to change, you know, subjectively to whoever's defending, to who's ever, whoever's with you. Sometimes it might go left, right, depending on these things. So what it did is it got us to constantly use a problem-solving method under high pressure. Which was great because the thing is with techniques and drilling is you're not under pressure and you're not thinking. You think for maybe the first five or six times and then you stop thinking. And then from then on, you're just repeating and you're just programming your body instead of your mind. So your mind just goes numb, your brain just goes black, and your body is the only thing learning. So what I'm trying to do is get people to use their mind the whole time. So then what happens when we went into a live match? We were so used to, to working under pressure that it was comfortable for us. We thrived in the chaos rather than, you know, felt intimidated by it. So 
using that in jiu-jitsu, remove the static technique training and make everything live. Make it changeable. It should be confined to a certain you know area that that's it helps you be disciplined in what you're trying to learn. But it has to be live. If it's not live, it's dead and it's not correct. It never is correct, and it's very hard for people to really you know understand this and understand what they do live when you're trying to drill on them because they think they're reacting the way they they really would, but they don't actually know. It's the same as when I, I, I do acting. And you go into on camera, and then you do this all this weird shit that you would never do in real life because <laughs> you really don't know what you do. You kind of just react, and it's very natural in real life. But when you get a camera put it on you, and it's kind of like, how do I react? I don't know. Uh, I think I do this. So people do that in technique training. Oh yeah, I, I think I would do this, and then you see it done in real life, and like, oh, okay, this is nothing like what I thought I was doing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so I think that through doing looking that looking at case studies, it, it, it just pushed such a strong case for why this style of training is so much better and it's the way we naturally learn as kids anyway for some reason you know when we go through the education system the industrial age one we just get pushed into that style of of teaching you know that style of learning but that's not suited for an art at all listening to your process at one point in time you said you gave the example of half guard and you're working on that and then after we kind of have that figured out partner up and pass that guy's half guard and he's going to try to sweep or submit you and and work on what we just did today live and then we roll after that and i think that that step of that drilling what we just learned and try to really get that figured out with a live opponent is is missing in a lot of academies yeah yeah no dead you're spot on there and it's not anyone's fault it's just you know everyone's doing the best with the information they have and the problem is when I first started talking about this to people is people did one thing, which was the worst thing they could ever do. They identified as something and they identified as a driller. So then when you spoke about drilling and you attacked it, you know, uh, and, or discussed it on a certain level, this has got nothing to do with the individual. It's only got something to do with that process of learning, but they take it personally and they don't listen to anything you say. And all they do is trying to debunk or attack you. And you see this a lot with feminism and with when anyone attacks anything with feminism that has a really good point, the first thing they're going to do is go through your history. They're going through your whole history and try and find anything that they can you know, shine a light on to show that, okay, it doesn't matter what he just said because we just found out that he kicked a dog back in 2008. So they try and discredit you. And this is what was happening with me was people were just trying to look for anything to discredit me as an individual rather than arguing with the actual point I said. I've never, ever once had anyone argue with what I say in a, in, a, in a way that you know was correct. And if they did, I would take that on board straight away and I would change the way I think immediately. I've got no attachments to the way I think. I only look, search for the truth. So uh, we had a big issue at the start when I started doing this because people took it personally. They identified as something and they took it personally. Then, you know, eventually people started listening and people started seeing and then they're making more sense. And as I do seminars now, I get a lot of coaches go, this is exactly what I've been trying to teach, but I haven't been able to articulate it. And at first, it was really hard for me to articulate it. And I had to do a lot of studying of different subjects, listening to a lot of TED Talks, reading a lot of books, a lot of podcasts to get myself to the point where I can articulate it to where I am now, which is going to be nowhere compared to what I'm going to articulate it in five years. In five years, I should be able to say in five minutes exactly what I've taken half an hour to say right now. 
But, you know, to do this, you have to be learning, you have to be listening to other people and constantly growing as an individual. You know, and a lot of these instructors, they, you know, they've adopted an ideology and that's all they're doing and they don't listen. It's, it's very similar to a lot of people in religion where they, they adopt that and they do not listen to anything else. It's just, that's faith. There's no questioning. And, and I, I feel like it's the biggest problem with, you know, not just humanity. I mean, it's one problem with humanity, but in jiu-jitsu, just adopting ideologies and being set on that. And this is what Bruce Lee was heavily against. And I think a lot of people misinterpreted what, you know, his philosophy was, but he was basically, you know, about trying to break down the constructs of, you know, the old way people were learning karate with carters and all this kind of stuff and making everything live and realistic and functionable. So that is kind of, I feel like in a, in a sense, I've picked up where, not even where he left, he's miles ahead of where I am, but, you know, in a sense, what he did, what Maita Masashi did, and as a bunch of other people were doing is exactly where I've sort of picked off and I'm, you know, using my own experience to try and use that. So, so for me, I, I feel like jiu-jitsu is a great lesson in life and not a very cliche way is what most people use it, but there's a lot of really cool lessons that you can use and translate in other areas of life. But I use jiu-jitsu as almost like a, uh, uh, like a vehicle for that. But ultimately what I teach in a sense, is philosophy, and not in a sense that I know better than anyone else, but just through my own experience. And you know, every time I do a jiu-jitsu seminar or a lesson, we speak more about philosophy and ideas than what we do about jiu-jitsu. But it's used through jiu-jitsu, if that makes sense. So I feel like for me, it's more like teaching jiu-jitsu is more a way of just you know teaching about life in general. But I use that. If you just teach techniques it doesn't transcend any further than jiu-jitsu it's just jiu-jitsu but when you talk about philosophies and concepts and ideas they in you know they transition into everything they translate into everything yeah or or largely you're leaving the student up to figure out what parts of this can can help them off the mat <laughs> without yes. the ideas of philosophies uh, behind that to kind of help them get that off the mat and figure out what's good for them exactly you know, one example of this would be i have this uh, this technique in making people move. And the reason why is, yeah, let's let's paint this picture. Let's say you're, I'm sitting there and I'm watching you and I'm just watching you and you gotta, you have to punch me and you're a meter away. It is going to be difficult for you to punch me without me dodging you because I'm observing you very carefully. So one thing I do in jiu-jitsu is I get people to change their, their point of observation or what they're observing at. And a way of doing that is by make, creating awkward moments or awkward situations, and not in a you know in a sexual sense or anything <laughs> like that, but in a, a sense of what salespeople do, where they make people like they create awkward silences, or you know they they they'll take one step and then wait, and it always almost makes you move. And I know the the Israeli uh, immigration do this when you're going into Israel, and they'll ask you a question. They say say why why are you here? And you go oh, I'm just here to do this. And they look up and they'll just keep staring at you. And then you're kind of like, uh, and I'm yeah, doing this and I'm also this and I'm working. Oh, me, I'm not working. Sorry. And they're like, ah, gotcha. Because they make you talk. So a, a trick in jiu-jitsu is to make people move. So what I'll do is I'll come in and I'll make this elaborate movement, bang, and I'll stop and I'll look right at them. And they see me pause and they're like, oh, shit, I've got to move. And then they move, but they don't have to move, but they do anyway. And they're not even thinking about what they're doing. They're just moving because it's awkward. And then what happens is they transition from looking at you and focusing on you to focusing on what they're doing. And when they move is when I attack. And that's what Bruce Lee was philosophy of, of Jeet Kune Do was, was way of the intercepting fist, which was 
basically getting them to move, and as they strike, bang, you strike. But to get them to move is really, it's a fun way because a lot of time they don't even think about what they're actually doing. They're just moving to, you know, fill this hole, this awkward silence. And this is the same thing that people do when they do speeches a lot and they put ums and ahs because they don't like that awkward silence. But really good, you know, talkers will leave that because it draws people in. So what I try and do is I, I make a movement and I play it like chess because I know I can't win a game of chess without him moving his pawns out of the way first. So I'll move my pawn and I'll make it obvious and I'll stop and look at him and then they will always move their pawn. But the difference is I'm very, uh, I'm very, you know, my movements are very, uh, there's a lot of thought put into them. Where a lot of the time when you put, put them on the back foot, they're going to move and not even think about it. So they're not making, you know, an intelligent move. They're just moving for the sake of moving. And that's when I attack because their focus is not on me. It's on them. So they're not really concentrating what I'm doing. So that's a, a you know, an easy analogy that you can use in jiu-jitsu, but you can also use in real life. And salesmen do this all the time. They'll create moments and they'll slide a, you know, they'll have a pen and paper, they'll put it on the ground, slide it towards you and then stop and wait for you. And then suddenly you don't know what you do, so you grab that pen and you start signing. Or you're about to sign, you don't even know what the hell you're doing this. You know, they, they use these kind of tactics a lot. Yeah, they give you an offer and then they just wait for you to respond. Yes. And that silence, and if- you have to fill it with something. And yeah. it's like a, it, yeah, that's an amazing thing. That Does that work at your level? I mean, I can see that a lot of lower belts, you know, they stop moving or, okay, now I got to do something. But when you get to the elite level, are you, do you find that people still act the same way? Almost always. The only reason I get away with half the shit I'm doing is because of that. I mean, you remember, I'm, you're taking me that's trained one-tenth as much as most of these guys have trained. So their experience in it is far greater than me. And it's only because of these kind of tactics that I can actually do what I can do at this level. Because if you look at it technically, they're going to be 10 times better than me technically. They're going to know so much more. They're going to have so much more practice. But if I can confuse and deceive them and take them outside of their, you know, their usual realm and, you know, use deception against them, that's when they can start coming undone. So when I'm winning a match, it's usually because I'm using deception in a certain way than what it is, you know, me being able to out technique them. You know, they could sit there for days and talk about how many different techniques they know. You know, people say, what's your favorite technique? I'm just like, uh, I, I, I don't even know. It depends what they're doing because everything I do depends on you. It's all improv. So for me, it's very hard to be structured like that. I don't have that, that understanding. But when it comes to the psychological part of it or the concepts and the ideas and the philosophies, I'm at the top level of that. So it allows me to do what I do against these guys. So it allows me at the moment where I train probably six times a month to go out and compete against Ken Cornelius, all these guys in Rio Santana, and hold my own with these guys because of these kind of tactics. If I didn't have these tactics, I would get destroyed in the first 10 seconds. How, how often are you training? Oh, God. Between, at the moment, five and six times a, a month. Like, like, like once or twice a week? Yeah, if that. Okay. When's the last time I trained here? <laughs> I haven't trained since I've been in LA, put it that way. I've taught a couple things, but it's very different to, to training when I'm teaching a private. Usually there's a, there's a couple there, so I'm working with them. But a proper training session, yeah, barely ever. Uh, and this is a thing most people don't understand is I'm a hobbyist when it comes to jiu-jitsu. I, I do lo- like I love it, but I'm a hobbyist. There's about 10 other things that I enjoy just as much as jiu-jitsu. I love business. I, you know, I love trying to make money. I love coaching. I love 
guitar. I love acting. I love film. I love singing. I love all these kind of things, philosophy. I love learning different stuff. You know, a lot of these guys are, are very much, you know, jiu-jitsu is everything they love. Where for me, I understood very early what it is I liked about jiu-jitsu and I found about 10 other things with it because jiu-jitsu is not always going to be there. I'm not always going to have the body that I have now and I don't ever want to be confined to one thing to bring me some kind of you know, ultimate happiness. It's the same in financially, you know, having one uh, income stream is a dangerous game. I have about six or seven. So I know that if three or four fail, which is probably going to happen, I've still got the other, you know, three or four. I see the value of that. I just, it's hard to understand how somebody could train. Uh, I would say you train, it sounds like you train less than most hobbyists train. Uh, so, because I travel at the moment, and I'm okay. doing seminars, it, it's very hard. If I was at home, and I, I haven't been home since May this year uh, and had my own sort of place. Uh, so, back then, I was training, you know, a bit, a lot more. But, at the moment, I mean, since, you know, when I competed the Worlds and I won the first two fights and lost to Galvao, they were, you know, I trained four times that month. I had an injury as well, so I couldn't train. So I had the ability to train at the time, but I, I got injured. Uh, the ADCC, I was traveling from uh, Vegas to Dallas to LA. I had meetings with uh, you know, an agent in LA, um, and it was really tough to try and find any kind of training partners. And you know, I was very lucky to stay with Dave Avalon that worked with me a, a hell of a lot. Uh, Manny Diaz did as much as he could with me because he had just he had elbow surgery and uh, Ibumar kind of worked with me. But you're, you're talking about trying to compete against these elite competitors that are super trained uh, and super prepared when you've had you know a couple sessions that month. It, it makes it quite difficult. So uh, as a competitor, I'm very much a hobbyist, but the approach I use works very well for that. And also something that I, I did recently that. It was a massive breakthrough for me was my mindset and the way I looked at com- competition and I pretty much took all the pressure off myself so it, it stopped me from having any kind of you know, massive anxiety or, or unnecessary adrenaline jumps before the competition and that was a, it was a huge uh, game changer for me. For example, uh, and this is the problem, like we, we have this ancient uh, biological trait the fight or flight, you know, simulator that happens whenever we're in some kind of threat. So we have a threat, and then suddenly, what we do is our body releases adrenaline. It uh, dilates your pupils to let more light in. It dilates your blood vessels to let more oxygen and blood go through to your muscles. It makes you feel sick because it wants you to throw up and shit yourself to be lighter if you're going to run. So these are very uncomfortable things. But when you are in the moment, in a threat, you don't have time to think about that because you're in that moment. So they only help you in the moment, okay? But when you have a competition now, which is set in the future, we didn't have this back in the day, now we, we schedule a competition or you know, which feels like a fight and then you start thinking about it and it's not even there yet and you start having the exact same reactions. Your body starts releasing adrenaline, you start feeling nervous and, and you've, if you've competed, you feel the exact same thing I'm talking about where you have that, that kind of feeling. And you use all this unnecessary energy. By the time the fight comes, you've depleted, you know, one, you know, or maybe more, probably four-fifths of your energy levels. And then you have it, and you might even have another adrenaline dump. And by the halfway through the match, you're just so exhausted, and you don't know what's wrong with you. I've had that my whole career. Until I changed the way I looked at jiu-jitsu, or comp- competition jiu-jitsu, and this competition was the most unfit I've ever been, but I didn't feel tired, you know, overtired during our matches. I fought Keenan. We had a great fight for five and a half minutes. 
Uh, we had some really cool wrestling and scrambling exchanges, and I felt like it was really good. And then I, you know, I took one calculated risk. You know, ten centimeters on the right, it would have worked out for me. I would have been four points to nil. Ten centi- you know, where it was was enough where he ended up taking my back instead of me getting the takedown, and then I lost. You know, judicious is all about calculated risks. Um, but I felt really good. I felt free, and I felt happy for the first time in competition in years. So it was really cool. So you know, I, I feel like. For me, the point of jiu-jitsu, aside from any kind of egotistical crap, the point of jiu-jitsu is for your own personal growth. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. I mean, medals and all that are going to fade. You know, any kind of competition, you know, money you're going to do, you're going to spend, and you're going to realize that as soon as you win a gold medal at the Worlds, all you're going to do is want the next one because you get the short-term high and realize it doesn't last. Okay? So... The best thing about jiu-jitsu is you are challenging yourself as an individual. You're battling your demons, and you're going out there. And it's not you versus him, but it's you versus you. And the ultimate way to grow is by challenging yourself. Now, to this is the kind of the funny conundrum you have here, where most people are so focused on the results, so they prepare so much to minimize the challenge. They minimize the challenge by getting super fit before the competition, maybe getting on steroids by training so much, by being so prepared that the competition is as small a challenge as possible so they have the best chance to win. But you don't learn from your wins. You know what I mean? You learn from your losses. So my idea right now, in a philosophical way, which doesn't work as well because it makes it harder to win the competitions, is to put myself at the worst possible, you know, to a certain point, the worst possible position to win because then I have the most to grow and learn from. So maybe I'm not going to win as much, but I'm definitely going to learn a hell of a lot more than most people. One of the interesting things about tournaments is that most of the time, uh, you kind of get tougher and tougher matches as they go. So <laughs> you're going to find, you know, you get you get 10 guys in a tournament, all but one of them are going to lose. That's, I mean, mm-hmm. that's just how it is. And I think it's an interesting approach as far as you're competing as a, as like a happy competitor and, and you're in there for different reasons than, than most competitors. I think that that's taken a tremendous burden off of your shoulders and, and you're able to uh, enjoy the process and, and compete with a different mindset than most. Well, you hit it on the head. Enjoy the process. Most people, most people in life hate the process to get something that they think is going to bring them joy. So I think that this, you know, win this gold medal is going to bring him, you know, all this happiness or money is going to bring him happiness or this girl is going to bring him happiness. So to get them, they do things they don't like and in a process which they don't enjoy. So they spend half their life suffering to get something that's never going to make them feel any better. And this is kind of the way I felt when I was younger. I felt like I, I, I identified as a winner. I had to win. So I was so stressed and nervous about competition because I, I thought, you know, I have to win. But then when you look at it and then you, you really reflect on what jiu-jitsu competition is, it is not a true indicator of the best guys. I'll give you an example how jiu-jitsu is about like tiring your opponent out to finish them, you know, in a sense. So it's more like imagine finishing a tennis match in the first match. You'd be like, what? what? That's it? Yeah, that's what it is. You're training for a marathon and then you're competing in a sprint sprint lap. And uh, you see in tennis, most of the time, the person who wins wins the first couple of games has nothing to do with the, the person that wins in the end. And jiu-jitsu is about you know, problem solving, it's about reading your, your opponents, like dynamic problem solving to defeat your opponent, to get them to use more energy than you to eventually submit them, especially if they're at the same level. 
But when you go on a competition, you're putting as much energy in in a short amount of time to either catch them in a submission or to get up on points before the, the time is gone. And most of the times you catch him in a submission is because you're up in points and the guy needs to do something because he's going to lose on points. So he takes a risk that ends up losing. Now, if you look at the way it's structured, it's even, you know, the same sort of problem arises. For example, on the weekend, uh, oh, sorry, not week, the weekend, the, the Nogi Worlds, I was the only person in my division that had the fight to go into the division. Some guy pulled out on here. So he had the first two buys, okay, which meant he went straight into the quarterfinals. So for me to meet Keenan in the quarterfinals, I had to win two matches first, which puts me in, obviously, a, a worse con- condition uh, than what he's going to be. He's going to be fresh against someone's point. And this isn't just not with me versus Keenan Rank like this, but this is just what happens. And, you know, or maybe me and Keenan fight first round. Maybe we're the two favorites, and then you get this other guy that's not that good that has four easy fights to get in and gets him with so much more energy, and then Keenan loses. I saw when Keenan fought Gordon in, in the ADCC, Keenan just looked broken already. He just had a massive war with um, with uh, Craig Jones, is uh, a is a girl from Australia. He had a massive war with <laughs> him, him, and uh, was exhausted. So you know, uh, Gordon made him look like junk, but it wasn't a real true representation of it. This way, this is what jiu-jitsu is. It's a roll of the dice. It's taking calculated risks. And, you know, the, the more you compete, the more chance you're going to have of winning. But it doesn't mean you can be the best in the world and it doesn't mean you're going to win a world championships in jiu-jitsu. They're two very separate things. I'm not saying that the best jiu-jitsu guy in the world isn't a world champion. He could very well be, but it isn't a true indicator of it. Well, that it, it does help you tremendously to be very good at jiu-jitsu. It, I mean, you, you talk about having a mental edge or, or playing uh, a little bit of psychological warfare on somebody. It, it, you know, it also helps if if your cardio was to the point where you were some uh, amazing athlete and you, you are in that third round and your competitor's you know, getting ready to get sweaty for the first time all day, if that doesn't bother you because you've got the gas takes. Like, I, I see it more as you putting putting the scales in your favor and then stepping on the mat and trying to see how it works out. And, and there's lots of different categories where you can try to tip the scales into your favor. They're not all just technique. They're not all just, you know, history and competition experience. But there's different factors uh, that, that kind of play in effect. If if you were to design your perfect uh, training, if you had like a match, say, in like three months and the winner would get a million dollars or something crazy – yeah. What would your training look like for a match that was very important to you? That it was like uh, something you were to take super seriously and, and take maybe well, the fun out of jiu-jitsu for a little while. Yes, if you uh, you added three million dollars, I would have a very <laughs> different approach. You can tell you that much. <laughs> uh, okay, so if it was a match that I really cared about to that level, the way I would structure my training would be obviously you would have about an eight-week uh, uh, entry process to to train for it. And the training would be very different to what you see at most clubs right now. So most clubs, they do rounds on rounds on rounds. They have short breaks. And now that's training for a marathon when you're about to compete in a sprint lap. What I would do is, and it would be very hard to do, obviously, I would get a new person every 30 minutes or every 20 minutes to fight me for 10 minutes. So I would go in 10 minutes. Regardless of what happened, I would keep going. And then I would have a break for 20 to 30 minutes where I don't do anything, where I relax, just the, the same way you do when you're in jiu-jitsu. And then I would go again. But I wouldn't just do this in private. I would have people looking. I would have people watching, maybe even film it and put it online because then it creates some kind of stress and pressure to, to do well. So I would 
I would recreate that same environment that you're about to compete in, or as, as close as I can. So I feel like making it 10-minute rounds with 20 to 30-minute breaks is exactly what you need to do, because that is really what happens in jiu-jitsu. You're not going in and having a match, and then having a 30-second break, then having another match. And you're not, you're not super sweaty when you're competing either, because you're just cooled all the way down, you're, you're cold, your body hasn't sweat yet. And these kind of elements really change. When you're training in a gym that everyone's sweating heaps and the mats are all sweaty and you're just sliding and it's, it's more like jelly wrestling than what it is about <laughs> competition, you, you can't even stand up because you're worried about hurting your knees because the mats are slippery and you can't grab anything because everyone's so slippery. So you just it's, it's, it's a different style of jiu-jitsu. When you go on a match and half the time you don't even start sweating for the first five minutes, you're probably in shock half the time and you don't, your body's not sweating at all. So, you know, these are different, different environments. You're learning to, to, you're training on, that's like a training football on a ground that's raining all the time and then you're competing in the dry. It's very different. And this is why you have people that are good in the wet, people who are good in the dry. And the same sort of thing happens when you're training. You're going to get really good when it's wet because that's how you train most of the time. But in competition, it's dry. So you have to try and recreate the same elements, the same environment as that you're going to be competing in. So that's what I would do. I would get super fit. I would uh, I would be doing strength and conditioning training that resembled what jiu-jitsu would be, and I would be doing a lot of training. And ultimately, I'd prefer not to do strength and conditioning. I'd prefer that the training partners I had were that good that would, that would be the strength and conditioning itself. But that's kind of how I would structure it. Obviously, you can see the the challenges in that is that you know not everyone else is going to give a shit whether you win that three million dollars or not. They're not going to you know help training. But I mean. The UFC set this up a lot better, or MMA sets this up a lot better when you have a proper team and coaches that are there for you rather than jiu-jitsu. Most people are other athletes that are there for themselves. Yeah, and to realize when it's all over, <laughs> whether you win or you lose that or don't make that $3 million, it's not going to make you any happier. If you were happy when you started the process, you'll probably be happier when the process is over. Mm-hmm. Happy guy out and yep. off the bat. <laughs> Yeah, the same sort of thing. I have big financial goals in life, and it's not about the money. Obviously, I don't give a shit about money. The thing is, it's about the freedom the money gives me yeah. or the opportunities the money gives me. It's very easy to – and like one of my main goals is to help as many people as I can. It's very hard to do that if you can't travel, and traveling is expensive. Uh, it's very hard if you don't have you know the money to get good marketers to help you advertise what you're teaching and good people to film it and record it. So to, to make money, you have to have money. And I, I've learned that this year when I see last year, in December last year, I had $20 in my name and literally didn't know how the hell I was going to make the, the rest of the money. It was like uh, I mowed my mum's lawn for like $20. And from then to bringing out the online training programs this year, we made and the meal plans and stuff, we made $260,000 this year. But then I, now I realized to keep that money going, the amount of money I have to spend to make money is insane. Like I spend about $6,000 a month on marketing now just to be able to reach enough people to help as much people as I can because ultimately that's what I love the most. I love getting messages. Uh, I wake up almost every day to a message saying, hey, kid, I just want to let you know I watched the article in Jiu-Jitsu Volume 1 and 2 or, you know, and it changed the way I looked at Jiu-Jitsu and it's freed me up and I feel like that way of training was much better for me and, you know, and that kind of shit makes me feel so good. And getting paid to do that is even better because it allows me to do more of that. Now, my goal eventually is to revolutionize jiu-jitsu completely in the way everyone looks at learning it, not just a handful of people, to everyone. And it's slowly happening. And uh, I can see that now because I see people that were so you know, so stuck on their ideologies of just drilling that now I see their posts and their advertising and I see concepts written a lot of the time, you know, my new concepts, which is great. It means it's growing and it's really sort of catching on. 
but we need to get that further and further so we, we have less of this um, you know, more opportunities for either one to to go either path they'd like to. I want to get into the uh, the art of learning, just volumes one and two. But if if someone's listening and they're they're really interested in your training ideas and, and what you've talked about already, but they go to a, a school that is probably the most t- common type that is the typical school of jiu-jitsu. What yeah. could they do today when they show up to class to have well, kind of lean more towards your way as far as uh, to get the most out of that from your point of view without having to change the whole school? Most students don't have the opportunity to tell their teacher, hey, let's do this instead. You know, they're kind of, they're, they're where yeah. they are. Yeah, okay, three things. The first thing is go to your teacher and go, listen, have you watched uh, this Kit Dale program? It's ridiculous. Just watch it. And Because if you say it's really good, they're going to go, no, I don't want to read it. Tell them it's really dumb or there's something really aggressive. <laughs> that Kit, Kit says something about you in there. Get them to watch it, and then hopefully they understand what I'm saying, and then they change the way. That would be the hardest thing to do. The second thing is probably the easiest where you go there, and whenever you're doing the techniques, try and just change it up. Just tell your training partner when your teacher's not looking, just say, look, just, just react a little bit differently. I'm just going to try and figure out how many ways I can do this pass. So instead of Instead of focusing on what you're trying to do, focus on why you're trying to do it and, f- and keep thinking when you're doing these drills. So you're thinking all the time. So change it and randomize it as much as you can. The other way is what I did is just don't turn up. Turn up late all the time <laughs> and then come in after they've already done the techniques. And look, this is not the nice way to do it, but ultimately this is the way I look at it. I'm paying you for a service. You're my coach. I'm paying you. You don't own me. You are working for me. So when I do seminars, I tell these guys, I say, listen, you're my boss right now. You're paying for me to be here. I can do whatever you want. If you want me to jump rope, I'll do that. I'm not here to push any ideology on you. I'm here to to give you the service in which you want me to render. And it's no further than that. And as a coach, I'm the exact same way. If someone wants to leave and someone wants to go somewhere else or train or learn somewhere else, I would encourage it completely because you, I do not own you. I am here to service you. And if you're paying my bills, then I do whatever the hell it is you want me to do. You know, I work for you. And co- too many coaches... And their egos have built up so much that they've forgotten this and they think that they own the students and that the students are working for them and it's the other way around. Yeah, having world-class coaches or world-class athletes starting to coach and, and say that is is very encouraging uh, for students and, and to realize that they are in a servant's role and they need to help their students as much as possible and get them in the right place. Uh that's i think that's that's we're seeing that more and more as time goes yeah you you can see that there's so many coaches the same way and they say the same thing it's great it's refreshing but you still hear this free on shit and all this kind of stuff and it's just you don't as a coach i'm going to tell you if you're listening to your coach right now when you say that you know what you look like insecure you look like the jealous boyfriend that doesn't want his girl to leave because he's worried that she's going to go cheat on him and she's going to do that if you worry about that shit because you just, you're just you not showing any confidence. If you're a real leader, people are going to stay. If you're really good, people are going to stay. And if they leave, who cares? Not everyone is designed to be your student, and you're not designed to be everyone's coach. Okay, So don't stress about that kind of stuff. Just let it go. One of the things that you did uh, early on was you would skip the, the beginning portion of the class. Yeah. So was that actually beneficial or was it just better use of your time? I mean, uh, would you go, I don't know, lift weights instead of that 30 minutes at the class or were you watching television or like, Uh, or would you stay 30 minutes longer at the end of the class? I mean, I'm I'm trying to see like, 
is do you feel like the the negative that the part of class where you're doing techniques actually has a negative effect? Well, look, first, Vilfredo Prado, an Italian economist, came up with a rule called the 80-20 rule yeah. that showed that 80% of your results come from 20% of your actions and 20% of your results come from 80% of your actions. Of your actions sorry. So to break it down, you've got to look and go, okay, 20% of what I'm doing is giving me the most results. So I'm going to throw away 80% of the shit that's not really helped me that much and I'm going to amplify the 20%. And that's what I feel like I've done. Okay. I've taken away the crap, take away the techniques, take away the drills, throw them out, Go into the specific training, go into the concepts, go into the live training, and that is your 20%. So for me, I feel like I don't need to train as much as all these people to stay with the same level as these people. And sure, I could go and I could spend a month of getting conditioned and probably win the world championships, but is it going to change my world? No, not massively. Things are going to be the exact same thing that we're. I'm going to be exactly as happy as I want. I'm going to have another medal that I've got to throw in the basket. I'm not saying I don't want that medal. The medals are great and stuff like that, but I want to earn it the way I want to earn it. Uh, and, and it's not that way. So ultimately, I would say take – and you're not going to learn that much in one day. You're not going to retain that much information. So the only thing you're going to get from that is conditioning. So spending a whole hour doing something is, is – you know, you're going you're to keep 20% of that, you know, 20 minutes of that. There's no point of, of wasting your time doing these double sessions a day. Unless it's for conditioning for, for a competition, you're wasting your time. You're not going to remember it. So you're only going to do more damage to your body than what you know than what you you need to be doing. Uh, so I would say amplify the part that you enjoy or get the most out of, which I think is the the specific training that's all live and that kind of stuff, and throw away the rest of the crap, and uh, you will progress so much quicker than the rest. Especially if you're doing what I was talking about and what I talk about in the the art of learning Jiu-Jitsu Volume One Two, where I say like learning through trial and error. You're going to be your own boss. You are your Jiu-Jitsu is your own company. And you run that shit. And if you're waiting on someone else to teach you how to run that, you're never going to really understand it or never going to be able to innovate or understand on a level that you can, you know, articulate it and break it down and, 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 you know, deconstruct it and pass it on to others. And that's all going to be what they're learning. But basically the, I haven't seen them yet, but the, the art of learning of volumes one and two, it's kind of helping you focus on that, that 20% that's giving you the 80% results. Like, like this yeah, is what's yeah, important. Teaches- yeah, it teaches you a lot about that and all the other science behind the methods of learning, uh, randomized training versus uh, block training and stuff like that, using case studies from different sports on why certain ways of training is more effective, how to get the most out of it, how to get the best memory retention out of your training, how to structure your training, all that kind of stuff. So it's more about the science of learning jiu-jitsu than what it is about um, just uh, just how to do something. I'm teaching you why to do certain things. And then what happens, that's like a kickstart. It gets you in there, you understand how to structure it, and then you can go further down the rabbit hole and you can learn my, my guard passing masterclass and then the Z guard masterclass with Craig Jones, uh, the back taking masterclass with Craig Jones, and then my favorite one that I'm about to release in probably a week or two, the Art of Learning Jiu-Jitsu Volume 3, which is specialized for no-gi grapplers. So I talk a hell of a lot about my wrestling concepts and my takedown concepts, which has been some of my most successful stuff of lately. Uh, I spent a good two years working with some of the best Russian wrestlers uh, that specialized in arm entanglement that you, know, that you use really well in jiu-jitsu. So how to grip people, how to change grips, how to do all that, which is most people, we leave the gi, we go to no-gi, we don't know how to grip anyone. 
and suddenly we can't grip. So it's very messy, but you can grip. And by, by using this process and the way I understand it and the way I break it down, you can start gripping people almost like they're wearing geese. So it's, it's a, it's a, a great, it's almost imagine like no gi for dummies. That's what it is. Well, and that'll be the volume three. Uh, do you recommend uh, volume one? Are they kind of meant to be consumed in order? I would say get volume one and two together because they go quite hand in hand. And I've got it on special for you to get it better. It's much cheaper than going separately. And then once you've watched that, get uh, number three. And then once you've watched that, then you can go further into that if you if you choose to go to those more specialized areas. I think the master classes. The the better thing about that is it's more like if you love back takes, then you're going to like that. If you like Z guards, you're going to like that. If you you know, and I'm going to be doing more and more master classes, which are just more specialized areas. But the art of learning jiu-jitsu, volume one, two, and three, are going to be like the cornerstone of learning jiu-jitsu. That's what basically I think in the future most models are going to work from. When I say models, I don't mean attractive people. I mean, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean classes. Yeah, uh, it's very interesting in kind of hearing the, your teaching philosophies and and, and how you want to uh, help people get better jiu-jitsu. Do you see value in a beginner's class? As in, a, I don't know if it's just one or two classes or a month-long class about teaching them what a guard is and that sort of thing. Or do you like to yes. just throw the beginners right into normal class? No, no, definitely. I, I would have. Uh, I've got. I'm designing a program for coaches at the moment, and I have a introduction, in, introductory class for for beginners that are basically explaining what everything is. It, it's very overwhelming for a new student to come in and go, "Why am I sitting in somebody between someone's legs? And what is this? What's the benefit of that?" And you know, most of the time when you know we train and people that watch us that don't know anything about jiu-jitsu be like, "Oh yeah, he was winning. He was on top," and they don't understand what's going on. So I try and give them an understanding positionally of what these positions are, why you don't want to be here, where you really want to be, and then we start putting them into live training. Now, it's almost like throwing them in the deep end of the water, but what I wanted them to do is I want to, them to start straight away problem-solving and learning through trial and error. At first, they're going to have no idea how to do things, and it's going to be quite uncomfortable, but they're going to start working things out really quickly, and they're going to have a slower starting, but they're going to develop an understanding of jiu-jitsu. They're going to understand the fundamentals, balance, uh, timing, uh, movement, all the most important things, and then we can start working from there. There's no point of teaching them some kind of cross-collar choke from mount the first session. They're never even going to know how to get there or even control that position before they can choke. So I would, I would try and get them to learn. You know, the, the last thing I'm going to be teaching them is submissions. I want to try and to get them to understand control and movement and timing and then start working the submissions rather than, you know, like imagine you go into boxing and the first thing you learn is how to throw a, a knockout punch. Yeah, without knowing anything about footwork, without knowing anything about head movement and timing and stuff like that. It's just backwards, and that's kind of the way people are teaching like it backwards at the moment. They're teaching, you know, they're really the things that people, kids, you know, students going, oh, I just learned a choke, and they go practice it on their mom and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's not really getting the most. That takes a, a different type of a coach. I mean, uh, it's, it's so easy to teach what the student is asking or wanting to see but it may not be what's best for the student at this time. And it takes a, it's a different type of coach to say, actually, you know, we can get to that a little bit, but I do want you guys to learn about this, uh, this idea or, you know, this concept and, and teach that even though the demand might be high on a different area, you know, that overall it's better to learn this instead of the, the flying Uma Plata. Yeah. yeah. Your time students, I could tell you your time's gonna be better spent doing this today. And, and some students may not like that, but uh, overall, better results. 
I, I see this all the time. I mean, I, I look at I look at a lot of stuff on Instagram. People post me, and there's a guy that does BJJ after forty or something, and he does the most insane techniques I've ever seen. I couldn't even do that. I don't even have the dexterity in my body, and I'm thirty turn 32 soon let alone after 40 i was breaking half i don't understand you know people tons of people are watching this is amazing and stuff it just seems like a guy that's trying to come up with as many possibilities to do something that are very unrealistic than than the other way around he's missed the point of what you should be focusing on jiu-jitsu which is easy that's like the wishy-washy like bruce lee's i can show you these fancy jumping spinning back kicks but are they realistic most likely not I teach you the most simple shit. It's not maybe not as fun or look as flashy, but it's the most effective. So I try and stick to that. The same thing with the 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 10th Planet guys with their their insane warm ups at the moment that they're doing with all these different movements. And I got people come to my seminars asking me about these things, and I just look at it. I just think it, it's just it's just uh, it's like clickbait marketing for grapplers. Like you feel like you're learning something, but you're really not. You're just developing more bad habits than anything. And you've got no understanding of why you're doing these movements. You just these movements are just a shell. They're just the tip of the iceberg. But without all that information, you're never going to learn. Like I said before, if you go to if you run a business, if you do podcasts, right? If you were just to teach someone how to do podcasts, you just say, okay, just push this button here and lift that up and and do this here, and now we're going. It's still not going to happen. When it comes in a situation, certain things aren't working. He's going to need that information that you come up with through trial and error to change this. Otherwise, he's in a lot of trouble. So when they're doing these warm-up drills and all these different movements, they're not getting the information that they need that's important. They're just getting that shell. And that's one of the beauties of jiu-jitsu is that we can train really hard and, and, and put ourselves in these you know, these situational drills or situational sparring and get a lot out of that that a lot of sports you can't do. If we're going to train boxing – I don't want you hitting me as hard as you can yeah, <laughs> to yeah. teach me the lesson. Uh, maybe that's the best way to learn boxing. I don't know, but that's not what I want to do. Jiu-Jitsu, you know, you, you can put me in half guard, and then I can try to pass it as hard as I can, and we're going to be all right, and we're both going to learn a lot and get feedback from each other in that live situation and, and yeah. the, that learning, the thinking environment that you're talking about. I, I, I'm reminded of, uh, I forget who, but there's some ultra-marathon runner who who could just run like a hundred miles, you know? And basically, what happens is this person checks out mentally. They just they just they're doing it, but they have no concept of time. They just their body is just doing this. That is the opposite of what what you want to do. Just you want your mind involved as much as possible and it working and figuring yes. out these problems. And it's great for ultra running to just forget about how much pain you're in and forget how far you've run so far and, and all this stuff. But just so you want your mind working as hard as it can and really trying to figure out things and remember things. Yeah. Can you imagine doing that ultra marathon with someone trying to trip you up every two seconds? <laughs> that's jujitsu. You, know, you can't just sit in autopilot and just go. There's someone that's actively trying to stop you. So there's a thinking machine in front of you trying to destroy you. So you have to be in the moment and you have to be aware and you know hyper aware so that's why a lot of things from different sports are not going to translate so well across you know what i mean marathon runners are probably not going to come into jiu-jitsu and just blitz it they're <laughs> going to have to change their process if that's what they're doing you know i'm not saying they all do that but it's very different you know like a live problem it's like a rubik's cube that's constantly changing its colors jiu-jitsu yeah i think that's what if i go on a jog and i have music it distracts me 
and that that helps yes. me run better. Yes. So Good. that's just the pain. Yeah, you don't you don't want that distraction. You want focus in jiu-jitsu. You want to learn from little mistakes that you're making and not just get away with them and and you want to learn and get that feedback of different things your opponents can do. Yes. Yes. It's 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 funny because it you know, train it's once again it's it's training the mind. And that's the ultimate thing in all life is training the mind to to control your mind. If you let your mind control you, it can create create a heaven of hell or a hell of heaven. I can't remember who that was that said that, but it makes some it, it's true. And if you can actually start to control your mind, it's so much better. And, and to put yourself like to give an example, of that when I competed the Nogi Worlds two weeks ago, the best thing I did before my matches was never think about my match. The moment you start thinking about it, the moment you start producing the adrenaline, you start getting scared. There's no point to think about the match. There's nothing I was going to do before the match that was going to change the actual outcome of what happens in that match. All I can do is put myself in the best possible shape to win in there and then trust myself that I'm going to make the correct decisions or the best decisions for me when I'm in that moment. And anything before that, you're just going to waste your time and and energy thinking about and you're going to put yourself in a, a, a state of suffering before you compete, which is not nice. And so from now on, I don't think about the match at all. I just, you know, and any time I do, like, I would think, like, oh, I'd start thinking, who am I? Forget about it. Think about something else. Come back to the present. In the present, there's nothing wrong, and it's all happiness, and it's nice. <laughs> it kind of sounds really weird and cliche. I used to hear it all the time, but it made much more sense once I, once I started doing it like that. And rather than just concentrating and letting my mind control me and focusing on the matches and, and you know, using so much energy before the match out of fear and, and you know, of, of failure and stuff like that. Yeah, you're, you're using your mind to control the reaction of your body. Like you mentioned before, you, you, you get that adrenaline beforehand and then you probably get one during the match as well and, and you've got nothing yes. left. <laughs> this, is, this is the thing is like your mind changes your physiology. Uh, Stanislavski knew that in acting and what he did is he realized that your body actually changes your mind as well so by changing your body structure can change your mind for example if you want to uh, and I did this test with people where they they got uh, the group half the group to uh, to imitate, imitate poses of like winning like hands up in the air celebrating sitting on a chair with your hands right back and your legs open and compared to the other group, they would sit there with their arms crossed and kind of sitting like leaning forward with their head down, almost like a depressed sort of position. And they, they did all these tests on them, and they found that the group with the celebra- celebratory, I don't know if that's even the word, uh, the celebratory stances were 20% more likely to take calculated risks, and they had 20 more percent, uh, percent more, I think it was testosterone or something they developed, I can't remember what it was, or quarter, is it cortisone that makes you calm or that makes you anxious? Whatever makes you calm, they, they produce 20% more of that. And the other group were, were 20% less likely to take calculated risks because they didn't believe in themselves. And they, uh, they had the, I can't remember exactly what the chemical is. I'm sorry, but there was a, uh, a chemical that basically made them feel sad. I can't even remember it on the top of my head. But, you know, just by changing your physiology it will change yeah. your, your, your emotion and your mental. So by changing your mental, obviously it will change your physiology. If you're feeling very confident and happy about yourself, let's say you go and you get – this doesn't happen to me anymore, but you go and you get a new haircut and you feel really good. You're walking. You feel everyone, everyone's looking out. The girls are checking you out or if you like guys, the guys are checking you out. And you feel cool about yourself. You know, you feel happy and confident. Uh, and you can, can you can produce the same thing by changing your body to that by having your chest out, by having your chin up, by having your shoulders back and walking around. You know, you 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 take a pose that you would do if you were happy and winning, 
and it may start and suddenly starts making you feel happy by even smiling and stuff like that. People's, you know, depending on people's uh, emotion will depend on their body shape. By you know, when they're smiling, if you smile enough, your body, your face will start changing shape eventually. And there's these, I, I forget if it was Indian face readers that they do that, and they can tell basically like what kind of person you are by what shape face you are. If you're a happy person, if you're smiling a lot by the shape of your face, because it changes like a muscle. Your face is a big muscle. If you're smiling a lot, it's going to take a different shape than if you're sad a lot. You're going to have certain wrinkles, you know, that come out from it as well. So uh, I guess my point is, which I don't have a point, is <laughs> it's far more beneficial to to take the pose or the body uh, the body language almost of someone that is happy to create a more happy uh, mental state than what it is for the opposite. Yeah, or to, to walk around and and have the the mental image of yourself as a is a really good grappler and and you'll yes. walk around a little differently and the, the example you gave with the haircut was cool because you walk around you feel like you're being checked out by people and people think you look good a good percentage of that is you feeling that way and you're actually looking better not the hair but your your posture your confidence your yes. eye contact and that sort of thing the haircut put you in that state of mind but they might not notice that they might just notice you as a whole person feeling that way and these these are little i like these these are little mind or or little tricks you could do to to help use your body affect your mind in a positive way that's uh, that's really cool yes yes exactly and you don't want to overdo it because then you look like a dickhead <laughs> you know yeah, your chin right up and your chest right apart this is what happens when you get like bodybuilders on steroids and stuff that are you know selling drugs on the side and they've got their big gold chains and they're walking around like they're the toughest dude in the world that shows obviously like overcompensation yeah you know when you, when you know someone like we obviously we do jiu-jitsu when you get very confident in your ability you don't need to brag about it you already have it feeling so good there that you don't need to even create those kind of postures because you already got an abundance of confidence in that area but you might go into a nightclub and then suddenly feel not confident because you don't know how to talk to a girl or you're shy or insecure you go to a you know public speaking event and then suddenly you crumble you know so it's good to to have those kind of techniques for areas that you do need to work on but once you're already there then you're there you don't need to worry about that and uh you know that's why i think in, in uh in most areas you know for example when you don't have much money People that don't have money will brag about having money but never prove it. People that really have money, they're never going to brag about it because they don't want anyone asking for money. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or it's not even really on their mind. They, I mean, they're not stressed yes. about money, so it's not an issue. Uh, Kit, I, I, I've, kept you long, I've kept you here longer than I uh, said I would, but i got to know, you talked about doing a movie. Uh, could you tell yep. us a little details about what that was and, and what's up? Okay, so – a movie called Iron Sky, The Coming Race. Uh, we did it in 2015 in Belgium, and I play a third billing character, so I'm one of the bigger characters in it. It comes out in February the 14th, I believe. Uh, Universal have picked it up, so this is super exciting for me because I, mean, I love jiu-jitsu, but I mean I love acting a lot more. I love film a lot more. I'm a big kid at heart, and I, you know, I love just running around pretending I'm someone I'm not and some kind of superhero. And my goal is to play in Marvel movies. Like I would love to be uh, some kind of awesome character that uh, i'm not in real life <laughs> and uh it'll be uh it'll be a lot of fun so that movie comes out on february the 14th i believe and i'm super excited because uh i'll have my green card by then for the states and then i'll be able to act here and you know see where that takes me uh my goal is to you know i love acting and um you know my goal is to be be acting in a lot of big movies and i find it uh, an extremely um difficult task so i feel like there's so much area to grow in it because you know, jiu-jitsu is extremely difficult, as you know, uh, but it's a it's a small niche area. 
of combat sport. When you've got acting, acting incorporates every single thing, every part of life. You know, you, you might have to work on. You might play a role as a fighter and you need to learn how to fight. You may play a role as a butcher, like Daniel Day Lewis, and he spent six months as a as a, an apprentice butcher. You know what I mean? You know, you don't know what kind of role you're going to get, and what kind of challenges it's going to have. I remember for my first um, for my first movie, uh, Iron Sky. Sorry, that one that's coming out. I had to put on about six kilograms of muscle, and I had to learn all the lines, and I had to to learn the script and understand my placing in it, my character, what he's thinking, what he's feeling. And I had to learn an American accent. Uh, the whole placement uh, of the voice is completely different, as well as the um, intonations, the inflections, and the uh, the vowels. I'm looking at this. Sounds like a uh, interesting movie, kind of a action adventure it's, comedy. Yeah, it's a crazy movie. So don't don't take it seriously. If you think it's going to be like a serious movie, don't take it seriously at all. Imagine like uh, just like any kind of Marvel movie. Let yourself go. And you'll have a fun uh, ride. I think it's a fun movie. There's a lot of comedy. Uh, there's a lot of action. Now I haven't seen the actual result of it yet, but from what I've seen in the script, the script is really fun to read, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, so depending on how they edited it and, and stuff like that, will you know ultimately you know make or break a film. Uh, but I think it'll be a very fun film. But there's a lot of crazy shit going on. A lot of you like conspiracies. If you like Eddie Bravo, and you like half the shit he actually believes then you're going to really <laughs> like what's going on in this movie because it's based basically on uh, some of the bigger conspiracies. Did I'm always curious about like kind of learning things from Jiu-Jitsu and taking something else. Did anything in grappling help you become a better actor or maybe has something from acting definitely. helped you become a better grappling, uh, vice versa? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, for starters, there was a bit of grappling in the film, so that, that definitely helps. Uh, I get into a fight with... Uh, a reptilian version of Steve Jobs and Adolf Hitler. So uh, I do use this, do use some of the techniques. But uh, the main thing is, honestly, with competition, when you're stepping outside your comfort zone, anytime you do, you're going to grow as an individual. Your comfort zone is going to become much larger, and you're going to feel more confident to to attack other areas of life. So for for me to go into to acting. I feel like I had a bit of a head start because one, I'm used to being on film for thanks to to jiu-jitsu and stuff like that. Uh, so you get a bit of a head start, and you're confident in your own abilities. So it, it definitely helps. But I mean, it, it helps a little bit, and then you've got to learn how to to act, which is a completely different, you know, a new beast. It's like you know, going from uh, playing a high level sport into jiu-jitsu is going to give you a bit of an advantage in the mental front. But I mean, ultimately, you're going to have to learn how to do jiu-jitsu, otherwise you're you know, it's never going to get you anywhere. So it's a good head start. And at least the, the best thing is it actually gave me the confidence to even approach uh, acting. You know, when I, I was lucky to have a mentor uh, back in 2010 that completely changed my life, took me from uh, being a shy kid, insecure, not happy with life, to absolutely living in an abundance, happy, so happy, confident that I could do whatever I want and only whatever I want. And, uh, you know, he, he changed my life, and then using jujitsu as the first test out of that showed that it really worked. And now, you know, now doing the acting is going to do the same thing. And then, you know, as far as I'm concerned, whatever else I want to do is going to be the same. Business, exactly the same. So uh, I feel like they're, they're very good starters. The confidence is the most important thing. If you have confidence in yourself, then you're going to take the necessary steps in order to achieve those kind of things and in order to fail to, to learn from those steps and then to achieve it you know, ultimately later. Wow. Uh, where do you see yourself this time next year? Uh, about two inches longer. 
Um, <laughs> and uh, this time next year, I will probably have a house in California somewhere. Uh, I will be pursuing a lot more of the acting stuff and the coaching on a much larger scale. I have a few new websites getting built at the moment for coaching. I'm literally at the moment, uh, my business partners on the computer loading up, uh, the new programs for the strength and conditioning and the, the, the meal plans right now. And in two months, the mentor that took me from not believing in myself to understand I could do whatever I want is going to be, uh, we're going to launch a new program online to get everyone else the exact same experience to understand that they can also do whatever they want. And, uh, we're about to change some lives on a massive scale. So I think the biggest difference next year is one, I'm going to understand on a greater level what I'm learning right now. I'm going to be in a, a better position to help people because the new websites and programs are going to be up and no doubt it's going to bring me more joy than it already is. Awesome. We'll look forward to following you. Is there a, a good place on social that you'll uh, that you recommend? Uh, on Instagram, Kitdale Official. I don't use the other ones much. Uh, Kitdale Official on Instagram. Uh, Kitdale on Facebook. I have a page that I pretty much use the whole time. It's the one with a, a, a black and white picture of me with my abs out. Uh, they're the best two places to find me. And if you're interested in the products, KitdaleTraining.com is where I'll have all those released. All right. We'll put links to everything uh, in the notes. Everybody. Thank, you. thank you so much, Kit. It's been a blast talking with you. No, thank you very much, man. I appreciate it. I'd like to thank uh, Kit Dale for coming on the show to us and uh, uh, definitely learned a lot from him. And, uh, you know, just an awesome competitor, awesome teacher. And uh, uh, definitely don't miss his movie, uh, you know, that's coming up. Uh, I'm, that's one I'm looking forward to seeing. Yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, I'm also looking forward to seeing that. Check out, he's got that, uh, The Art of Learning, Jiu-Jitsu Volumes 1 and 2. Uh, that will be a great learning tool for everybody. Uh, I really enjoyed talking with him and, and learning his perspective on jiu-jitsu. His example of, he knows how to play a couple of songs on the guitar, but he doesn't know the fundamentals and the principles of guitar. So when it comes time to like improv or, or learn something out of what he just knows, he doesn't, he's not good at guitar. And jiu-jitsu could be the same way. Like You could know some techniques and you could look good, but all of jiu-jitsu is basically that improv portion of the guitar where you're just jamming out you got gary over there on the bass and i got i got joe on the on the drums there and and i'm just kind of wearing on the guitar <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but you can't improv you're in trouble and you can't you can't just flow with things and that's what jujitsu is juice is not a script of things there's somebody's going to present you with problems some of them you probably haven't seen or haven't dealt with in a way they're going to bring them and that's why it's so important to understand the fundamentals and the principles behind jujitsu uh, versus just knowing the techniques. So, yeah, I want to say that flies in the face of uh, a lot of things I've heard. So I'm having a hard time with it. But I think he got his black belt in four years. So that's right. Uh, I'm a, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt on this one. <laughs> yep it's a uh, it's an interesting concept, and he's he's really uh, sharing that with everybody in those uh, volumes one and two. So check those out, guys. Yeah, and if you go to his website, he's got other. Uh, DVDs and products. It's interesting. Everybody go there and take a look at it. You know, we just talked about Kid Dale's movie. Hey, Joe, what's your favorite Clint Eastwood movie? It seems appropriate that I would say The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. I think that's definitely appropriate. Tell us why, Joe. Well, I just uh, finished up an article, and I titled it The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and the actual topic is self-defense seminars. 
And you guys have been training longer than I have. I'd be curious to know how you guys feel about it. It seems like uh, they've gained some popularity. And uh, there's some people that make a living offering self-defense seminars. And the reception is mixed from the martial artists that I talk to. Some of them think there's some value. And some of them think they're just a, a waste of your money. Where do you guys fall on that? Well, you know, um, after reading your article, you know, I, I kind of agree with a lot of the stuff you said. Um, there can be some good stuff out of a, a self-defense seminar. And I think that would be more related to, uh, you know, kind of like what you're talking about, you know, promoting safe behavior. Um, you know, looking around as you're going out in parking lots at night, um, keeping your head on a swivel so you know what's going on. Um, not talking on your phone as you're walking, you know, maybe walking in a group of two or more. Um, having your keys out um, as you leave your workplace or wherever so your keys are already ready in your hand. You know, stuff like that I think would be good. But it seems like the majority of the self-defense seminars I see are teaching technique. Um, and I think, you know, you do the technique a couple times and against a, un, against a willing opponent. And, you know, I think sometimes it can lead to a false sense of security. And, you know, I see that in jiu-jitsu a lot of times, especially with a new guy. Um, I'm working a technique that has worked numerous times, but I get a new person in there, even if we're not going full speed, they're going full speed plus 50. Um, they're not moving where they should move. And it makes makes it a little awkward, makes makes the technique chunky. And, you know, I just see some, you know, I guess I'd say just some terrible technique and uh, terrible, you know, that I think is terrible. I'm no self-defense expert. But, uh, you know, I think sometimes it could end up uh, uh, giving you a false sense of security and getting you hurt uh, more than it's going to help. Yeah, I like the 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 title, the good, the bad, the ugly, because they're all three uh, relative to uh, self defense seminars. We're not talking about uh, jujitsu seminars oh, thought- in particular. <laughs> We're talking about the self defense. You see them like plastered on you know different things. You know, learn how to defend yourself, and you go there, and and it's just like really. Sometimes they're teaching people. You teach uh, somebody who's got a hundred pound frame to to just how to punch and kick and. And, and and yeah, it's good for confidence sometimes, but sometimes that false sense of confidence uh, really wouldn't help. You could put a 200-pound guy; she's going to have a hard time uh, taking him out with those with those methods. It's I think the self-defense seminars sometimes do best when they just talk to them and they explain to them what's likely to happen, uh, how to avoid the situation, like Arizona, like like you know, be in groups. And in reality. Uh, if, if you're in a self-defense situation, a lot of times it's your boyfriend or husband. Like, like those are the people that you have to watch out for. And and, and, and that's a whole different conversation than it is punching a guy. If, if you're sharing a house with a guy who you're learning self-defense for, you're doing the wrong thing. You need to get out of that house and, and find avenues to do that and get some help. And I think they just... You know, obviously they're they're for profit and, and they're they're people making money and and they could teach a lot of good things and make money at the same time. That's that's perfectly fine, but to just come in and, and teach women how to knead the groin and, and and poke somebody in the eyes, I don't think that that's going to necessarily get the whole job done and 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 help uh, people get uh, better self defense and and you see them using different weapons and things like that. It uh, I don't know. I think they get a little carried away and they just they sell to the they're selling a product, and people are either scared or a little worked up 
and they want to they want a quick solution to something. And I think in Jitsu that we know that these things don't come easily. Uh, it takes a, a while to understand uh, what's happening with your body and, and what's happening uh, kind of in an a altercation. And there's a lot of variables that, that get thrown into the mix. And you can't learn that in a seminar necessarily that quickly. Yeah, that was exactly the second point. The The bad that I see in the seminars is you can't learn to fight in an hour. You can't learn to judge distance. You can't learn to uh, create angles or use angle, angles to be favorable for you. No muscle memory. You can't do any of that in three hours. I think a self-defense seminar, besides educating people a little bit, can be valuable if the conductor of the seminar promotes continued training afterwards. You know, if you're going to hold a self-defense seminar, maybe hold it at a jiu-jitsu gym and then encourage the students to join up afterwards. Yeah, I've seen that happen a lot. Um, you know, you have a, a jiu-jitsu gym, will do a self-defense seminar. And, it, you know, it's also to build your clientele. Hopefully out of, you know, 20 people that show up, maybe five of them will stick with it. And, uh, you know, that is a good thing right there. Like you said, promote, you know, keep training, uh, you know, come here twice a week or whatever. And, um, you know, just keep, you know, repetition, practice and practice and practice. Yeah. My, my instructors taught a couple of self-defense seminars for women in the last year, but he also has a twice a week, uh, woman's only class, you know, so that's a good way to get them in the door and then get them into some serious training. Yeah, and that is that the, you hit the nail on the head on that one. They, uh, if it gets people interested in learning more, it could be a very good thing. But a lot of people will come in for that hour, hour and a half class, and if you leave them with the impression that they now know, know how to fight, I think you're doing them a disservice. You need to kind of leave them with there's a lot to this. It can be an enjoyable process to learn, and 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 it also helps to have examples of people who are there training, and you know come back and and train and and join us on the team, and 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 we'll teach you more. But it, so much of this self defense stuff is not being in the situation; it's avoiding uh, the self defense scenario entirely. I mean, how many self defense situations do you want to be in before you end up going bad? You know, one will go bad, even if you you can fight well. These are terrible things that could happen to you. You just have to be careful because the people that are going to these seminars, they don't know uh, what they're learning. It's like with anything. They don't know that they're not learning something that's of quality. Or if they are, they may not even appreciate it. But um, So that's there's good and there's bad. And Joe has another category, uh, the ugly. It's ugly when as a self-defense instructor – you teach a group of people five fancy techniques in three hours and then send them on their way with the impression that they can now defend themselves. I think you've done them a huge disservice. It is possible you, you end up putting them in more danger. You get a kid that's been bullied at school and he thinks now he can go take on the bully and he ends up taking a beating. So uh, when you misrepresent and you take money and provide no service, that's the ugly. You know, I kind of got a little story about the ugly, um, and, you know, I, I just thought about the ugly as I was looking in the mirror here, guys. <laughs> but, um, hey, we had a uh, uh, guy from the Department of Homeland Security come into uh, to our workplace and, uh, you know, break us up into groups of about 10 and, and talk to us about active shooter situations and and stuff like that, that, you know, it could happen at a, you know, financial institution where I work. And, uh, you know, I thought it was probably the best training I've ever 
received um, while I've you know been working in a financial institution. It, it was awesome. But afterwards, I was talking to our our security personnel who handles all of our locations, and uh, she happens to know I do jujitsu. And uh, the crazy thing was, like I thought this was the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. Is she was thinking maybe at another training session that I could teach everybody how to do like a double leg takedown. And what she was saying was her son had wrestled. And, you know, the nice thing about takedowns is it'll it's easy to put somebody on the ground and then you can even get up and walk away afterwards. And, you know, my where I work is probably 60 percent women, 40 percent males. And I'm just thinking there, you've got to be crazy, you know, double leg takedown against an active shooter or a situation like that. And, uh, but that's just the, the stuff out there. You know, that's how some people think and joke at first. And I started laughing yeah. until I realized, uh, she wasn't laughing back. <laughs> well, yeah, so, the, and I know the rest of the story he's not wanting to really share is <laughs> he, he was offered the gig. He said, you know what? I'll do, I'll do a little seminar. It's going to cost a lot of money. But then he, t- he taught how, uh, to pull, to pull quarter guard and, uh, Actually, I think that would probably be a little more productive, especially for me. At least by the time by the time I've, I got them to the ground and entangled their leg, they won't be able to walk afterwards. <laughs> well, you know this re- this reminds me, Byron. You aren't part of it, but Gary and I have been having an ongoing text message conversation. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. This yeah, you're uh, right about, about that, Joe. About jujitsu and how it uh, fares as a self defense martial arts, and we're kind of both in agreement that. Uh, Jiu-Jitsu is maybe getting a little bit soft, and maybe part of it's the way we uh, treat white belts. And I can't remember what that last text you sent me said, Gary. Yeah, well, you know, it's you know, I hate to use the word, but uh, I, I don't think I'll, you know, somethingification. I'll leave the first part out. But you know, I do agree with you. I mean, a lot of this stuff isn't acceptable anymore. Um, you know, I mean, just like cross facing, uh, you know, I remember back in the day when Byron and I started, boy, we got beat up bad. I mean, I'd get cross faced, I'd get elbows to the eye socket. You know, I remember my throat being bruised from knee, knee across the throat. And, you know, I don't see that anymore. I think if we did that, we could definitely build a society of almost like cyborgs. I mean, the people would be that much tougher that have been in this sport. And, you know, like Joe, we were talking about the other day, no pain, no gain. That should be everybody's motto. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I really think we're doing them a disservice when they come in and uh, six weeks later, they still can't take top pressure. I mean, they got to learn to deal with it at some point. I'm thinking neon belly, first day, 122-pound accountant, 30 years old. I mean, they just they got to get tough at some point. You know, iron sharpens iron, and if you have – uh, you know, weak kids coming in. I guess you know this new idea. You got to run them out of there, Gary. You know, martial arts are not uh, to build the weak up to be the strong. It's to make the strong even stronger. Is that what we're saying here, Gary? Yeah, I mean, sweep the leg. I mean, what else should we do? Put them in a body pack, Johnny. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But yeah, I mean, Joe and and I, we've really been talking about that, and uh, you know, it's something that I think you know is. Yeah, I don't think we'd have this problem with self-defense seminars. You know, if we all went around and, and we got tough doing that, you know, think the way we could just dominate and do that to other people, which in turn would make them tough. And as time goes on, 
you know, those genes would be ingrained in everybody and the society would just be that much tougher. I got some old jeans, but they the, the knees and the, the bottoms of them wear out sometimes. You know, but I mean, let's go. Let's talk about jeans. That all goes back to what Joe was talking about. Today, people wear skinny jeans. I mean, <laughs> that, that wouldn't have worked back in the day. You would have had to learn to fight if you were doing that. Yep. So, Garrett, you're telling me the, the way you started training in that rough environment where it was you and me getting beat up by a couple of big guys is preferred versus the way a new guy would walk in the door uh, and train with you today. Yes, definitely. I say say we go prison rules. When when a new person walks in the class, I'll walk up, introduce myself, get their name, and then I'll point to the biggest, toughest guy in the gym and say, just go take him out. It's your first lesson. Yeah. Hey, you, Joe, you, you'll love this. It, you'll love this story. Yeah, go ahead. Byron, me and Byron used to train with this guy we used to call Red, and uh, he was, you know, three hundred pounds, all solid muscle, athletic as could be, just an incredible, you know, MMA fighter, just a a big guy. And I used to train many, many rounds with this guy and just get yeah. beat up left and right. But I'll never forget one day. We're sitting on the mat. We just finished a round, and, and as usual, I'm beat up, and he's not even broken a sweat. And some guy's looking at me like he wants to roll with me. So I was like, hey, you, you want to roll? And he starts walking over. He's like, yep. And I was like, with red, and I got up and walked away. <laughs> and I, I, you know, he wanted to roll, so I set him up with a nice one. Man. But that, yeah, it, so he's I mean, not, my, You're not exaggerating with, with red and his athletic ability and his kind of uh, – ferociousness at times kind of like a wounded woolly mammoth (laughs) (laughs) yeah you you don't mess with them i'll tell you not at all (laughs) yep yeah (laughs) but yeah joe i'm glad that we talked about that because uh you know that was something that's really been bothering joe and i yeah why why has it been bothering you guys oh you know just it's you know it's the you know jujitsu is going downhill with that and we don't want it to happen we're starting a revolution. Yep. Revolution. Yep. Are you with us, Byron? Well, actually, I'm more of the uh, the friendlier style of jiu-jitsu. I would take, you know, after a year or two of doing jiu-jitsu, regardless of how wimpy you are and you walk in, you're going to be pretty tough. Uh, and if you start off with the first two weeks getting crushed and getting smashed, you're likely going to not be tough and be at home playing video games. Well, what about fish hooks? Those are for fishing. If you like well, the fish, that's about, fine. Those are, yeah. for, those are for back control. <laughs> uh, no, we're we're just messing with you, Byron. Not that you've noticed that. I'm probably. The, <laughs> I kind of uh, figured that. I'm probably yeah. the nicest guy, nicest guy in the match. At least I like to think so. Well, that's what you tell everybody. Joe, yeah, Joe. I'll tell you a little story that Byron was telling me once, but. Uh, uh, you know, I always end up letting the uh, new guys beat me up or whatever, and uh, I let them work me over and, you know, whatever move we do and let them choke me out and this and that. And then you should see yep. him at jiu-jitsu. <laughs> <laughs> That's just the intern at the bank, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I've had stories where I've heard people, you know, on the sideline while I'm rolling, a brand new guy, like his first day, and he's like, 
yeah, I destroyed that guy. And, uh, you know, I know some people Byron trains with it said the same thing. It's like, man, you know, I used to destroy Gary when I was a white belt, but as soon as I got my blue belt, now I get tapped out every two seconds. It's, uh, I've always let people work a little bit. And, uh, and I do think that's because when I came in, I think we got, I got beat up a lot. Nobody really showed me anything. And, uh, you know, I didn't necessarily like it. I think it made it, made me tougher and made me, you know, especially better defense. But, you know, my, my goal is to grow jujitsu and, and I want as many people to enjoy this and, uh, have a good time as possible. Awesome. That's a good test for your ego when you let some guy work and then he gets off the mat. It's like, yeah, man, I put it on that guy. <laughs> hey, you'll, you'll love this story. So, uh, a girl's boyfriend that I used to work with. And he actually happened to be the son of the president where I work. And, uh, so he wanted to start training and he said, as soon as he got done with college, he's going to start training. And, and the dude kept his word. As soon as he graduated, he called me and said he wanted to start training. So I bring him in to train. And the very first day, you know, he'd watched the UFC. So he thought he knew a little bit. So the very first day, I, as usual, I let him do everything to me and beat me up and this and that. And, you know, just like I always do. But so then uh, next day, while I go to work, I walk through her call center and her boyfriend is in there. And like the three girls that she's around that all sit by her, they all start laughing at me as I walk by and start giggling. I was like, hey, what's so funny? And they're like, well, we heard, uh, you know, her boyfriend beat you up pretty bad last night. And that one kind of got to me. So I said, the next time I train with that guy. I'm going to see how many times I can tap him out in, in, uh, five minutes. My goal was 15, but I only got him 14. And, uh, and then after that round, I let him, uh, do whatever he wanted to, but I, I think maybe I made a little bit of a point that, uh, go ahead and beat me up, but just don't tell everybody about it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that is literally what Gary does. Like he'll grab a, a brand new person and he'll really coach them through some submissions and really help them. Uh, build their confidence. I don't do that myself. <laughs> I have. I want them to enjoy the role. I do think that I could tap them out twice in five minutes, and they could still have a good time. Uh, kind of judging their personality and, and how they take how they're taking it. Uh, I let them get some control, and I take it away. I let them do a move we did today, and then I'll try to counter that. I don't let them tap me out necessarily. Uh, I think it's pretty rare, actually. And. Uh, it's. I don't know. I. I, I kind of. I want them to understand that that they're not good at it yet. They can be. And although they look at me, I'm nothing spectacular physically, but clearly I'm doing things that they don't understand yet. And I'm friendly. I'm willing to share and I can get them there. But, uh, that's kind of the way I, cause I do, I do remember getting beat up by technical people and really enjoying it and thinking, this is amazing what they're able to do. And I do want to share that experience with people. Um, when they're, when they're first starting out and, and what Gary does sometimes he'll roll somebody, they beat him up, they come roll with me, and I tap them out a couple of times, and then they watch Gary beat me up, and they can't figure out what kind of weird math is going on to where <laughs> this guy is now annihilating me. <laughs> it's kind of funny sometimes. Hey, Byron, the one thing you were talking about, like you're not a physical specimen, you know, so you don't scare those guys. Was that the only true part I said? No, they have never seen you with your shirt off, Byron. Oh. So what we're going to do for all our listeners is Byron is going to post a picture shirtless and we'll post it to the <laughs> Facebook page. Oh, Gary, you got uh, good luck getting that one taken. <laughs> well, I already got one, Byron. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh. Well, you know, we're kind of spiraling out of control. 
So why not go a little bit further? Uh, last week we introduced a family feud segment, and Ooh, it was sweet. a lot of fun. And I enjoyed it. Yeah, I so did I, and I think the audience did as well. And then we have we have three people on the show, and I think we're going to go head to head: Gary versus Joe, uh, because I don't trust Gary. I don't trust him to put <laughs> to not listen to Joe's uh, responses. I'm going to give them different questions, and we'll just see who gets the most points. Uh, just kind well, of friendly questions are easier. Gary, you want to go first? Yes. Or you want to go second? You get a pick. Well, you know, since Joe's our guest today, I'll let him go first. Thank there we you. go. So you might have given him the easier questions, but at least it was your decision. Yeah, but don't, if I lose, <laughs> no matter who has the easier questions, I am going to, uh, you know, call shenanigans. <laughs> well, I'm just hoping for an answer that's terrible, and uh, or not even on the board here, because those are always the best ones. <laughs> oh, don't worry. I'll get two of those. <laughs> All right. Are you ready, Joe? Yeah, what game are we playing? This is called Family Feud. I'm going to give you a question, and you're going to give me your best answer that pops into your head. Okay. It's fast money. Here we go. I'm putting a non-amount of time on the clock because I don't have a timer. It doesn't really matter anyway. All right, Joe. Name a type of business where people call and they expect to be put on hold. The bank. Name a product that might be disposable. A napkin. Name something that children have difficulty learning to use. A spoon. I should have said the to- to- I should have said the toilet. That's probably <laughs> well, number one. Yeah, that that's is number one. <laughs> <laughs> or, or number two. Okay. <laughs> uh, name a subject people know lots of trivia about. Entertainment. Name something you see in a mansion. A chandelier. Nice. Man, that's what I was going to say, Joe. Kill it. Minds think alike. Joe, okay, let's let's tally up and see how you did. I think you did pretty well. For the type of business people expect to be put on hold, you give the number three answer for bank. The number Thanks, one, Joe. The number one was office, doctor's office. Uh, product that's disposable, paper products. The number one was diapers. Something children have a hard time learning to use. You said spoon. Uh, that's the number two answer. And the number one would be toilet. A subject people know lots about of trivia. Uh, you said entertainment. The number one was sports. You got the number two answer. And something you see in a mansion, the number one answer was chandelier. Dang, so, that was one. I I didn't know if that was going to be one. Yep. Man, get, Gary, I think I think I might have this. Yeah, I'm toast. <laughs> but you got the easier questions. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Gary, you ready for your fast money? Different questions. This is a little bit unusual, but uh, head-to-head competition. Uh, yeah, we're playing Eastern European rules. Name an excuse teenagers give their parents for coming home late. I was at a friend's house. Name something that comes in a spray bottle. Deodorant. Name a kind of singer. Rap. Okay, hold on, making a note. You got one. You guys guys are making these off. (laughs) No, I'm not. Uh, Tell me a kind of person on display in wax museums. Entertainment. There you go. That's a good one. Name something that has wooden legs. Byron, after he rolls with me. (laughs) Uh, A chair. Okay, I'll give you that one. I haven't quite figured these out yet because the excuse a teenager gives, you said at a friend's house. 
that was terrible. But uh, I don't see I'll that bet, as an option. I'll yeah. bet, uh, I bet a car breakdown was Car trouble one. was number one. Yeah. So, Gary, you got nothing on that. Well, uh, the one I was thinking of was I got drunk. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not what you tell your parents. <laughs> I know. I was like, uh, I wasn't very good at this when I was younger. <laughs> Name something that comes in a spray bottle. Joe, what would be the that number was, one answer? Oh, I thought hairspray. I don't know. Hairspray is number two. Window cleaner is number one. Uh, deodorant's not in the uh, <laughs> in the top six, so that's a nothing. Uh, uh, name a type of singer. You you got rap singer for four points. <laughs> so that's uh, pretty good. I actually thought you made these questions up. I know because they're yeah. Uh, the number one was country singer for a lot more points. Thirty eight. I don't know why that's so many more. A type of person at a wax museum. As you said something about entertainers or performer. That's 45 points. Gary. Yeah. You got so around 90-ish points. I got 49. No, you got around 50-ish points. 49 yeah. points. I need 51. Uh, you did great. Uh, I'm not going to even bother to add up Joe's. What was the last one I got? What? There should have been another question. Oh, there, there sure was. Okay. Name something that has wooden legs. I think a chair was pretty good. You, you did You did great on a chair. That's 40 points. Number one answer was Pirate. <laughs> uh, Captain Hook was a three point answer on that one. So that was fun. I still like Byron after he rolls with me. <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. Uh, well, Joe got more points, but uh, we all had a good time. Congratulations, Joe. What do I win? What's my prize? Uh, yeah, it'll be in the mail. Awesome. In uh, one to 47 weeks. And so, COD. Uh, yep, cash on it's delivery. Just a small shipping and handling fee, right? <laughs> I was all worried I was going to have to do math, but it turns out when there's that big of a discrepancy, when, no math is I required. Suck, when I suck so bad, <laughs> you don't need any help. Gary, that yes, was, I, I enjoyed that. Thanks, guys. And uh, Joe, you did great. I'm very impressed. Um, I'd like to thank our Patreon supporters. If uh, if you like the show, you're learning something about Jiu-Jitsu, you're having a good time, swing by the Patreon site. There'll be a link to it in the show notes or on the website. You can learn about it. Basically, you donate a dollar per episode. It means a ton to us. And uh, we use that money to help keep growing the show. Uh, we've got Joe on the show. Got some equipment sent out to him so he could do some interviews. Thank you, Patreon supporters, Joe, for doing that for us. Because Joe we demanded a lot of money. Yeah, Joe <laughs> demanded a lot of money to come on the show, too. So uh, I, th- you know, I, think to- I, I think I said it before. You guys doubled my salary. So yeah, like, doing, all, look, doing all right. Yeah, Joe, <laughs> Joe said he, he wants to get paid weekly. And I asked him very weakly with a W E A K L Y. Oh, spelling jokes, Gary. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't go very good over the air. <laughs> no, I, yeah, it was, you did great, Gary. Thank you. If, if you want to hear Gary's jokes continue, jump on Patreon. We'll send you out a, uh, a gee patch and a BJJ Brick sticker, and we'll invite you to the uh, private Facebook group. The thing about that, is it's, you're hard to find out there sometimes, my friends. So if you want to get in the, the private Facebook group and you're a Patreon supporter, uh, add one of us or mention it on the uh, Facebook group or the Facebook page or send us an email at bjbrick at gmail.com and we'll get you added because I can't go and find every Joe Smith that uh, that is a Patreon supporter. You can, there's a lot of people to filter through. If we don't have mutual friends, it become almost impossible. So uh, we like to get the Patreon supporters in the private group where we – Say, hey, you know, we got Kit Dale coming up. What should we ask? And you guys help form the interview in a way that uh, you'd find interesting as well. Next week, we have 
a gentleman named Rondell Benjamin. He's from Trinidad and Tobago. He was a recommendation from a listener. Uh, did some research about this guy. I was like, this is awesome. Just got to talk with him a couple of days ago. Uh, we talk a lot about jiu-jitsu. He, he's a free diver as well. He could dive like 100 feet down into the ocean and get a fish and bring it up. And and he has a lot of great stories and examples of how much jiu-jitsu has helped his community and helped him. So a uh, really interesting interview with Rondell Benjamin next week, my friends. Definitely uh, check us out on social media. Uh, we're on YouTube. You see us on Facebook. We're on uh, Instagram, Reddit. Uh, definitely check us out. And, uh, you know, always. T- hey, my friends, this is Byron jumping in from the editing studio. Uh, just wanted to kind of fill you guys in here. Gary just dropped from our Skype call conversation. And uh, I'm not just jumping in and interrupting him. His actual mid-sentence dropped. I've edited out several of these throughout the uh, podcast. He had quite a bit of trouble this week. Uh, usually it goes pretty smoothly, but uh, I don't know what was happening over there. But he dropped, and we'll get him back on in a couple of minutes here and joke about it. But those jokes wouldn't really make much sense if I didn't jump in here and explain why he was just gone. So back to the regular show, just Joe and I just moving right along. And at the, at the time, I thought we were going to close the show out without him because we only have a couple of things left to say. But uh, he ends up getting back and connecting back with us. So anyway, I uh, just hired from the editing studio. Try to catch the edits I made earlier in the show. I think they're pretty smooth and hard to find. But uh, this one, I was like, ah, I'll just go tell everybody what's happening. Here we go. <laughs> Come on, Gary. Are you there? And if you find yourself in the Wichita, Kansas area, look up Byron. Go train with him. You can try and look up Gary, but he's harder to find sometimes. If you're in Houston, Texas... Hit me up, and uh, we'll see about getting on the mats. That's awesome. And, uh, <laughs> you know, stick with us here. This upcoming month, we should have kind of a new thing out here with Joe, and and we're going to uh, have – I don't know what we're going to do for sure, but we're going to have hopefully a bonus episode every month or so, and uh, Joe's going to bring us some some really cool stuff, and we'll be on there as well, and or at least one of us will be on there. We'll have it's the same type of a show. But uh, just additional stuff, and really, it's all from Patreon and, and helping us grow the show, and, and happy to get Joe on here because he's always a good time. Yeah, I appreciate your support. Thanks for having me on, Byron, and I'm looking forward to bigger and better things. I don't know if Gary's coming back. <laughs> <laughs> he's harder to find sometimes. Uh, so, might as well mention this. The show's wrapping up here. Uh, we've had to, to pause recording a few times because Gary keeps dropping from the call. And uh, and he's coming I'm back, right back for like the sixth. <laughs> <laughs> Gary, I was just confessing to the audience that we've had to, to pause recording a few times because <laughs> you keep dropping off the call. Nice that the relatively newcomer Joe is a total professional here, and we got a guy that's done like 220 episodes, and uh, something's happening with Skype. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's because uh, I don't get paid paid enough. Money that's true. Violence, I'll but... double it, Gary. Yeah, sweet. Double. <laughs> Double zero. Zero times zero is zero. Dang. See, no, you're so good hey. with math. Yeah, yeah. But what I was trying to say before Byron so rudely cut me out of here <laughs> is um, definitely make sure you tell your friends about us. Uh, we really appreciate that, and it's the uh, best form of advertising for us. Yeah, that I forgot you were mentioning that when you uh, got disconnected, Gary. Oh, I think you disconnected me on purpose. I I see what you're trying to do to me. You know, you bring Joe on the show, and uh, <laughs> uh, you're afraid to tell me that I'm no longer employed, so you keep pulling the pulling the plug on me. I you, totally Gary, understand. 
Garrett, you always have a place as long as you're better at Joe than the Family Feud thing. You always have a place here. Well, we definitely saw that I'm not better at Joe, <laughs> but I, like I said, I'm calling shenanigans. I think uh, I think you were tanking for some reason. I haven't figured out what the advantage is, but. <laughs> um, All right, good times, my friends. Stay sweaty, and don't forget to tell a friend. Train hard, train smart, get better, guys. We'll see you on the mats. Thank you for listening. I hope you find the time today to roll. After all, the best way to get better at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is to do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu.